Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. So let's get right to the two big question marks of the day. I'm going to get it right out there. And I realize that today is a day that we're going to talk a lot about Indiana and Purdue from last night and the absolute clinic that Purdue put on and Indiana looking like they thought the game was actually on Wednesday. But I realize, I respect, and I understand that most fans with the Jim Irsay news that TMZ has broken are going to have a lot of questions. So... I will simply throw out the explanation, the best of my ability of those questions, and go from there. We who cover the Indianapolis Colts have heard the same rumors that others have heard for quite some time. Those rumors being that Jim Mersey had overdosed and had to be administered Narcan in his Carmel home and was hospitalized. And it is a very fair question for people to ask, well, if you knew that, why did you not report it? Very fair. And the answer to that is because when you are talking about, first off, a matter that the spokespeople for said person asked for a privacy, they did not about that specific episode, but there are privacy and HIPAA laws that make things very challenging. And yes, there is Freedom of Information Act where you can get 911 records and things like that. That's not, that specific entity isn't really underneath the umbrella of what I like I specifically do. So I don't know. And that's not to throw others under the bus. I, I don't know exactly that process or how it works. But the rumor had been around for a while that had created, as you probably have been able to determine when we have interviewed different people or talked to different people on this radio station about. Jim Mersey's absence from games, we had been hearing things, but we had not confirmed things. And one thing that I've learned in doing what we do for a living is that when you start to hear stories from different angles of angles that are not connected to one another, that's when you start to wonder, especially when they seem to be consistent. What I know factually is the following. Jim Mersey did a national television interview with Andrea Kramer where he discussed openly situations in the past where he had overdosed and had to be revived. Admittedly, those were circumstances that at the time were never confirmed and rather were not by Jim Mersey and not specifically from direct representatives of him, but overall were dismissed. And it's very difficult with HIPAA to HIPAA is the law that prevents a hospital or medical entity from revealing information about a patient without that patient's clearance. HIPAA makes it very difficult to be able to confirm a lot of things. So Jim Mercer in that interview 
divulged that he had had an incident in the past where he had overdosed and where he had been given life-saving procedure. In that same interview, in what I believe probably by Jim Irsay was something that he didn't realize the true scope of how it was going to resonate, he also was asked about his previous arrest in Carmel where he claimed that he was targeted for being a white billionaire. TMZ, in the last 24 hours, has confirmed from the Carmel Police Department, or rather I should say reported from the Carmel Police Department, that Jim Mersey on December the 8th was that the police were sent to his residence in Carmel, that Jim Mersey was found, and when he was found, he was unresponsive, and that he was unresponsive, struggling to breathe with a weak pulse. He, quote, responded slightly to a dose of Narcan, which is used to revive people after an opiate overdose. The police classified the incident as an overdose and overdose slash poisoning. Now, it is a fair question, although it's a relatively moot point in the grand scheme of things. It is a fair question to say, why did the local media not have this information and someone like TMZ can sweep in and get it? While I credit TMZ and have always said TMZ changed the trajectory of journalism when Michael Jackson passed away and they were the first to report that. Um, the The reality is that I, I think TMZ uses methods to acquire information. And I say this as a credit to them. I'm not saying it is a, is a to poo-poo them at all. I'm saying it for an explanatory standpoint. Uh, I do believe that they probably, I, I don't know this, but it would be my speculation that they you know, whether they paid someone to give the information, maybe they simply went through the Freedom Information Act, but I would think that different media outlets in Indianapolis, knowing of the stories that we had been told, were in fact trying to get those exact same records that TMZ used. I'm simply saying that from an explanatory standpoint, but either way, TMZ was able to confirm that information. Some two weeks ago, when a number of of people who covered the Indianapolis Colts, myself included, had heard the rumors about Jim Irsay. It is factual that we inquired about it. I can say definitively and on record that I inquired about the circumstances that I had heard with the organization. And at that time was told, there is nothing to report. And then within 48 hours of that, the Colts issued their statement on January 9th, that Ursay had been dealing with, quote, a severe respiratory illness and that he would miss an appearance in Los Angeles, and he has not been seen publicly since. They did at that time ask for privacy regarding the family, saying that he was receiving excellent care and that they would have no additional information. And truthfully, especially when you are somebody, and maybe this compromises, I, that's a fair point for people to make, but when you are talking about an entity that you cover above and beyond the health of the owner, you are respectful of that privacy that is requested. There are there are admittedly probably different guidelines, and I know that that's probably unfair and unfair to the listening audience or reading audience, depending on the entity or viewing audience, but that's there is some reality to that. Now, what we know is this. When the Colts issued the statement on January 9th, it is a fact that they said that he was suffering from a respiratory illness. 
there was a lot of speculation that that respiratory illness was actually a, I'm going to say cover for lack of a better phrase that I can think of, but a lot of us that cover the team were saying to ourselves, well, we, we had heard that he overdosed and now it's being labeled as a respiratory illness. The overdose of which TMZ is reporting was December the 8th. Jim Irsay was at the Pittsburgh game on December the 16th. I actually went back. I went to the Colts website. And in the website, I went back and found a tweet. And for that matter, Jim Irsay on December 18th had tweeted video of him on the sidelines at the Pittsburgh game on the 16th. So... Eight days after that overdose, Jim Mersey was at the Indianapolis Colts game against the Pittsburgh Steelers on primetime, which would mean that the stories or the insinuation that his hospitalization of late was linked to an overdose would mean one of two things factually. Either the overdose that TMZ is reporting, clearly that is not related to his recent hospitalization because he was at the game on December 16th between those two dates. Is it possible that it is due to a separate incident? I don't know that. That would be irresponsible to immediately associate. When they say that he is hospitalized with a respiratory illness, it does appear as though his hospitalization is not related to the December 8th incident that was reported and any insinuation that his current hospitalization was due to an overdose where he was administered Narcan by the Carmel Police Department, it would appear is actually a separate incident than that unless there has been an incident since, of which I have not heard that report. And therefore, the Colts report that his hospitalization currently is due to an upper respiratory illness would appear to be consistent because of the fact that on December the 16th, he was at the Steelers game, a date which was after the time where he was, according to the Carmel Police Department, as reported by TMZ, administered Narcan. There are many, many layers to, and I certainly understand that Jim Mercer is a private citizen, but because he is a private citizen that owns a franchise that receives public subsidy, that perhaps to some opens the door to the amount of conjecture that can be provided or around within the franchise itself. And then you get into other circumstances if you're talking about situations where he could be in in health danger about the ownership of the franchise, the future, and other such things. Those are probably conversations for a later time but it does add to the legitimacy or the fairness of speculation regarding him. But for right now, it would appear as though the thing to say is that he is in fact receiving treatment for, quote, a severe respiratory illness and that the best wishes for the fans and for those that know Jim Irsay would be in mind. He is undoubtedly a kind-hearted person. He is undoubtedly a person with Huge passion for his football team and by all account for the city of Indianapolis. And as a result of that, I commend him also for his transparency, for the source and the root 
of the struggles with which he has had as an adult. But whether or not those struggles have now manifested to the point where he is, is still undetermined. And at this point, you follow the guidance of what the Colts are saying, which is that he is hospitalized in a separate incident than that of which has been reported by TMZ. Uh, We'll probably talk about that over the course of the show today, but there is a ton to talk about. Purdue, Indiana last night. Rob Blackman going to join us at 1230. We'll get into the NFL draft at 1 o'clock. Matt Miller, ESPN draft analyst, going to join us. Chris Denaria, the Pacers at 1.30, and Jordan Cornette to talk about Indiana-Purdue at 2 o'clock. My name is Jake Quarry. Good afternoon to you. Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook here as well. Uh, Jimmy, the other big story last night is the fact that it is back, apparently on the front burner, Pacers and Raptors with the trade for Pascal Siakam. I, I go back to this, and I caught a ton of heat for it last night. The initial report is that the Indiana Pacers would be prepared or are exploring talks of three first-round picks, one of them a future pick. All of them would be future picks from from right now. But Bruce Brown, three picks, and then you would need a second player to still make a salary match. Of the players that would be mentioned, Jalen Smith, Buddy Heald, I get they're both on expiring contracts, so that does make sense. I get it. Um, Obi Toppin. Jordan Wara, there are a number of, Isaiah Jackson's name was mentioned. My simple point was this. If you want to give up Bruce Brown, if you want to give up three first rounders for Pascal Siakam, I get it, on board, all in, let's go. But when you start talking about what player needs to be a salary match, if Buddy Heald has made it clear that he is not going to resign here, then I get it. And the same is probably true of Jalen Smith. But it's great. Pascal Siakam is a wonderful player, but you still have to have players that are playing on the floor with he and Tyrese Halliburton. And if you are getting Pascal Siakam because you're pushing all in on a future move for your team, you've got to have, you you need to run with it, the pieces that you have already cultivated and put in work that are starting to blossom. And Isaiah Jackson is one of those. I get that Jalen Smith's on an expiring. I really like his game, but you would need to find out whether or not you have a chance in re-signing him. The bottom line for me is this, Jimmy Cook, and that is I think Pascal Siakam's a wonderful player. Anybody that thinks that my insinuation is other than that is wrong, but he is also a player on an expiring contract. And the amount that I'm willing to part with to acquire his services are totally dependent upon whether or not I believe that Pascal Siakam <clears throat> is going to resign here. If you're doing a sign and trade and he you are bringing in a player who is under a multi-year contract and you know that's going to be with the Indiana Pacers, hell yes, hallelujah, whatever you want other than Tyrese Halliburton. Let us name the price if you're willing to move him. But if you're sending me a player who is under contract for six more months and is under insinuation that he is not going to sign with you beyond this year, then I don't know what the value is because he's a wonderful player. But he's he this current installment of the Pacers is not championship ready. They're not a Pascal Siakam away from winning the title. And if you are going to get him, you have to win that title within six months if he's going to re-sign elsewhere. So that's where I become hesitant. Yeah, I mean, look, Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan, I know you're not saying this, Jake, but they're not morons. They they understand the process of negotiations. If talks continue to escalate, you're not giving away three first round picks 
without some assurance from the player or the player's agent that he intends to re-sign with you in the offseason. That's always a tough aspect whenever you're trading a player that's in the last year of a deal or trading for a player that's in the last year of the deal is where's the commitment level and how much am I willing to sacrifice to bring said player in without a verbal commitment. I will admit, and I give a credit as well to one of our favorites, Tony East, as I discussed with him a little bit last night or interacted with him in that regard. The picks that you'd potentially be giving up are not as knee-jerk reaction as I had at first. Anytime you hear three first-round picks, you think, oh, it's going to be over like multiple years, and you're going to set the franchise back in terms of basically taking out a mortgage to go get Pascal Siakam. They have two picks to play with, plus the Thunders pick, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of first-round assets just for next year's draft. And that's assuming that that's the play they take, is they give up all their first-round assets just for next year. They could, in theory, play with a future pick or two down the line and still retain some first-round draft capital for this season. In terms of players that could be on the move, a lot of options for salary matches would be guys that you're unsure if you would commit that amount of money to them with what they would want on the open market. You bring up Buddy Heald. I don't know what Buddy's, not interest level in the franchise is, but interest level is from a money standpoint. If the feeling is that you're going to have to contend and outbid other teams to retain him at a number that you might not be comfortable with on the same timeline as everybody else on this roster, plus other needs that you'll need to fill out, I'm not as attached to the hip at a guy like Buddy Heald. Bruce Brown's name has been brought up. He's a team option next year of $23 million. That's, a again, for those that don't know, it makes sense, right, how it's explained. Pacers have the ability to turn that deal down, and he would become effectively a free agent next offseason. So they have the flexibility in terms of pieces you wouldn't be necessarily hurt to let go in a salary match situation, but it's all dependent on, as you brought up, Jake, what Pascal Siakam wants to do with the future. I will be right there with you if his determination is, I'm going to decide in the offseason what I'm going to do, I'm not comfortable giving up that amount of draft capital. If the thought is, no, here's my number, I'm committed to the Pacers, then I'm okay with going ahead and taking the leap of faith and making a transaction to acquire him because I feel like you are still at an opportunity if you could secure him on a two-year, three-year, four-year deal where you're not speeding up the timeline to a point that you don't still have flexibility on your own. Did you watch last night's... I agree with that, by the way. I mean, it all comes down to, to Siakam and an extension. Yeah. I mean, it's bottom line. If he's shady, no deal. Like, that's right. basically what it is. Yeah. Or his agent's shady. Um, obviously, you watched Indiana Purdue last night, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. A couple of things that jumped out at me. First off, Noah Eagle sounds just like Dave Rebson. Have you noticed that? I think he sounds like his dad. I mean, that... He does sound like his dad, yes. but I'm not saying Dave Rebson's his dad, but he sounds... <laughs> Dave Rebson's... Okay, then Dave Rebson sounds a lot like Ian Eagle. How's that? I hear oh, yeah. similarities in all three of them, yes. Um, last night was a clinic. It was an absolute clinic. And Indiana, I got bad news for Indiana fans, okay? In the first half of that game last night, your team looked totally unprepared. They looked like they did not know what to do. They didn't have much of a game plan. McKenzie and Baco got out to a really good start. And once he picked up two fouls, Mike Woodson put him on the bench and then took a page from Tom Crean's notebook where he forgets about players. How many fouls did he finish with, by the way? Oh, that's right. He finished with two. Okay, I just want to make sure. He, he, okay. he, he, Woodson, to his credit, said after the game, look, I, I, I should have put him back in earlier. Because once that lead went to like 15, it was over. They couldn't come back from that. 
and he was the only pulse on offense in the first five minutes of that game. Like, I get it. He's a freshman. You're, I understand the logic of it. You're worried about picking up a quick third, and then what do you do? And I appreciate Mike Woodson acknowledging the fact that he probably should have had him back in there sooner, but at some point, especially with where your offense was, you roll the dice with him and let him play with it because at the end of the day, if you hold him out as long as you did, the game's going to be over anyway. I mentioned that last night, and it was. Like, credit to the fake rally that happened in the second half to make things look like they were going to be interesting. From an offensive standpoint, you could not afford to have that type of drought in the first half. That's how Purdue runs away on teams. First off, Xavier Johnson. And look, I realize that Purdue fans are going to hear me talking and they're going to go, Purdue went down there and cleaned Indiana's clock and I turned on the local radio station and they're talking about Indiana. I totally get it. Purdue's really good. Zach Eady was phenomenal last night. And the thing I love about Zach Eady, there's a lot to love about Zach Eady. I love the fact that this guy goes out and has 33 and 14 and for the most part, you know, he would score and kind of like be demonstrative to himself, but I don't see him taunting people. I don't see him acting like a jackass and like he's getting foul. Look, people can say all they want. Like, this guy fouls every possession. No, he's getting absolutely guys are draping all over him. He's got an unbelievable finishing touch. He had an unbelievable game and he dominated the game last night. Did Zach Eady dominated it. And here's another thing that, and, and, and the thing I loved also about Purdue was they were steady Eddie during that run. Indiana makes a run, gets it down to nine, crowd's going bonkers. They come back and they just make plays. Fletcher Lawyer on a few occasions gets a shot that maybe a year ago he puts up, but he realizes it's guarded. He's able to do a pump fake, take a step, get himself open. He goes five for six from the floor. Near perfect across the board offensive performance for him. Four or four from downtown. Again, it's the steps of these guards, and I know that Braden Smith went 0 for 6. I mean, okay, that's you work with that. They they won cleanly. That didn't have an impact on the game. You see steps continually game by game with these guards from where they were a year ago, to your point. Mason Gillis comes in, makes big energy plays. Lance Jones hits big shots from the outside. And then when Indiana started to kind of get things going just a little bit, and you know, the one guy that 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 was kind of giving them some energy. Trey Galloway and Purdue just goes in and makes defensive change, defensive changes and takes him out of the game and Indiana is stuck. Now, when I was a kid and I played basketball and I played a lot of basketball and if you were to ask people that played basketball with me growing up, I'm not even proud of this. Well, I mean, I'm not ashamed of it. The term that we used in the late 80s, early 90s, I don't know that it's around anymore. It, times have changed. Society has changed. Maybe it's politically incorrect now. I don't know. But when I was a basketball player, if you were to ask anybody about my basketball game, I guarantee you they would say, that guy is a total gun. And we called it a gun because that meant you knew that guy, anytime the ball was coming to him, he was going to shoot. I think I've been openly candid about the fact that when I played basketball, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, and I had a lot of conceptual challenges, and so I couldn't learn the offense. I couldn't grasp the offense. So when the ball would come to me, I would shoot because I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do, quite frankly. I shot all the time. So I was called a gun. People like, that guy's a gun. That was the term we used in the late 80s, early 90s for a guy that shoots all the time. Even when it's not a good shot, he's a gun. 
The two most appropriately last named named players for Indiana are Khalil Ware and CJ Gunn. Because CJ Gunn, even when it wasn't a good shot, he's putting it up. He only took seven shots, I realize, but that guy's not afraid to shoot. And Indiana, once McKenzie and Baco and Khalil Ware were on the bench, and it's like, well, where are they? And CJ Gunn's just putting up shots, and Malik Renew is killing his dribble 15 feet from the basket, and Indiana had no offense. And then late in the game, there's a loose ball, and Zach Eady is the, the the national player of the year that has 33 and 14 and is the best player in college basketball, is showing effort going after it, and Khalil Ware is like making sure that somebody might be putting him in an Instagram photo. That guy had no interest in being out there. His last name was totally appropriate. And Indiana, in a time where they need a good win for their NCAA tournament resume, is now back to the drawing board of figuring out where those are going to come so that they can try to make the NCAA tournament. And Purdue goes down there, puts on an absolute clinic, a clinic of how you run a program, a clinic of how you play games, a clinic of how you adjust, a clinic of how you have a game plan going into it, a clinic on how you go to your best player, and a clinic how afterwards you wipe your hands, you walk out of the arena, you move on, and you show why you are an actual contender for not only the NCAA tournament, but a number one overall seed and a late March push, whereas Indiana looked like a program that has, it looks glitzy, it looks glamorous, but when it comes down to it, zero to show for it. Rob Blackman's The Voice of the Boilers joins us next. If you're just joining us, where have you been? We touched on the report from TMZ about Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay. On December the 8th, Carmel police responding to his home and administering Narcan. Their story does include report from the Carmel Police Department um, commenting on the fact that they said he responded slightly to a, vo- a dose of Narcan. Obviously, at that point, he was taken to a local hospital. It it is true, and it is factual. That was on December the 8th, according to Carmel Police documents. And on December 16th, Jim Irsay was in attendance because there are photos that you can see in a photo gallery immediately following if you were to go back. Well, for that matter, he sent a, a on December the 18th, it appears as though he sent a, um, not appears, you go back and you can find on Twitter, he sent a video of himself on the at the game on December 16th against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So while he is currently, by all account, hospitalized, that according to the Indianapolis Colts, it would not be a continued hospitalization from the December 8th incident because clearly he was out of the hospital by December the 16th. Last night, Purdue taking care of Indiana and doing so in big fashion. Joining us now on the program to talk about that, he is the radio voice of the Boilermakers, Rob Blackman. And Rob, I'll begin with this. Uh, Zach Eady last night was sensational. He has been that way for the vast majority of the last few years for Purdue, clearly. And I thought Fletcher Lawyer showed some real growth from games that he would have had a year ago. And by that, I mean kind of knowing what was a good shot and what was not. He shot the ball very well last night. But give me a player or two that when you look at the box score, to use the old proverb of this, 
isn't a guy that jumps out, but that you looked at it and said, you know what, that guy really had a good game and Matt Painter had to be happy with what he did, not named Fletcher Lawyer and not named Zach Eady? Uh, I would give you two names. I would start with Lance Jones, and I know he had 17 points, so it, that's an easy one. But he just seemed to make so many game-winning plays for Purdue last night, especially in transition. You know, he had a couple runouts there in the second half for layups that Purdue does not make that play last year because they don't have that player on their team. They don't have a guy who can run fast enough to outrun the rest of the defense and score a layup at the other end. Uh, he has been a huge difference maker. We, I don't remember the exact number, Jake, so I'll apologize. We had it last night on the pregame show, but I've already forgotten. But it was fast break points compared to, from last year to this year. And again, I don't remember the, the exact number, but Purdue has more fast break points right now, this season, at this point, this juncture in the season, than they had all of last year for the entire year. Uh, and that's mainly because of Lance Jones. Purdue finally has a guy that can get out and run and get you transition buckets, easy buckets. Uh, the other guy I would give you is Ethan Morton. Um, played 13 minutes, only scored two points without making a basket, actually. Uh, it was because of a goaltending call. But defensively, what he was able to do early in the second half when Trey Galloway got going there, made those back-to-back threes in the second half, and you really started this. It felt like the momentum was really turning on the side of Indiana. Ethan Morton was subbed into the game at that point, if you remember, and then really did a good job on Trey Galloway of, of at least slowing him down enough where he just single-handedly couldn't take over the game because you felt like at that point he might just do that. Uh, so those are the two guys I would give you there that I thought were, as far as the guys you mentioned that you know that aren't aren't named Zach Eady or, or Fletcher Lawyer, I thought those two guys were really really playing at a high level last night. It is Rob totally unfair of me to ask you about Indiana because you don't cover Indiana, right? So I'm going to ask you a question about Purdue that I'm saying is a backslide to Indiana. I'm not pinning that on you as the voice of the Boilers, but I want you to to offer this perspective about Purdue. There was a point in the game where Zach Eady's energy level, his willingness to give up his own skin and knees for a loose ball, etc., was on display, and Indiana and a guy like Khalil Ware that at times feels like he's, you know, kind of sleepwalking his way through, there there was a different energy level. It's in Indiana. You got 15,000 of the 17,000 there are decked out in white. They're screaming for Indiana. Yet Purdue showed an ability to play from buzzer to buzzer at the same level, same intensity, and same focus. What is it about Purdue's practices, about Purdue's culture that forces them or allows them or instills in them that when they go into a game, it is all hands on deck all the time from beginning to end? Well, uh, that's uh, maybe a difficult answer, a lengthy answer, but I guess I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version here. The Matt Painter uh, coaching style, uh, if you will, is very similar to the Gene Cady coaching style in that uh, if you are not playing as hard as you can possibly play at all times, you do not play in the game. <laughs> you sit on the bench beside the coach. Uh, unless it's a very, very uh, rare instance, uh, that that is the case. And so I do believe uh, there certainly is something to that, knowing that, look, uh, I'm not going to play hard. I'm not going to play. 
there's also something to the fact, uh, the fact that Purdue is a pretty deep ball club. You know, I know uh, Miles Colvin didn't get a lot of run last night, but he, he has this season. And when he is playing, you know, Purdue is 10 deep and, and 10 guys that can play. So, again, if you're not playing hard, you just won't play because there's someone else that can take your place at, at all five positions. Um, so I think that's part of it. I would also say this as far as just looking at specifically last night's game. You have to remember Zach Eady and Mason Gillis and Ethan Morton, the senior class. Those guys have lost their last two games in Bloomington. Um, they've lost three of their last four going into that game against Indiana. Those guys have been court-stormed not once but twice in Bloomington the last two years. So there was some added motivation, make no mistake about it, going into that game that they would like to you know, finally beat Indiana in Bloomington. Uh, because they had not been having a lot of success with that. So you add on top of that, you're already extra motivated because you're sick and tired of getting court-stormed in Bloomington. And you have really good players who know that if they don't play hard, they don't get a play. Uh, all of a sudden, yeah, you can, I think you can find yourself pretty easily self-motivated uh, if you're in that situation. Rob Blackman, nice enough to take some time with us at the Purdue Radio Network. Rob, this Purdue team as a whole, and you mentioned the guards, I know – superstitious Purdue fans might not want to hear this. And yes, the draw is so indicative of what could be a happy March versus another depressing early exit. But I feel like this team, like many national pundits, is a second weekend, is a Final Four style of team. When you look at the growth of the guards year over year, do you view them as the same category in that specific position group as you would say a UConn in terms of if they were to match up against them or have a matchup in the tournament where guard play is equal or better? Has the growth been that significant that they belong in that conversation? haven't seen UConn with my own two eyes, Jimmy, so I, I can only reference what I have seen in as far as great, what I would consider great guard play, and that would be Arizona. And Purdue certainly held its own right. against, in, against those guys. Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith from both both fantastic in that game. Braden, I think, had 26 points, and Fletch, I think, ended up with 27. So at least from what I've seen with my own two eyes, as far as what I would consider the highest level of guard play in the country, and that would be, again, Arizona, yeah, I do feel pretty good about about that matchup. Now, I would also, I would counter, though, with this. It, the two games that Purdue has lost this year, it's because the other team's guard play was just at another level. Uh, Boo Booey. Uh, in Northwestern, uh, they were just at Tyberry, uh, uh, um, uh, Sherberg. I think I'm, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Those three guys are at another level. Uh, I think they combined for, I don't know, 70-some points against Purdue in that win at Northwestern. And then we saw the same thing at Nebraska, uh, where they were uh, they were outstanding from, from especially a three-point shooting perspective. Uh, it started with Tomei Naga. Uh, but but quite frankly, C.J. Wilcher was also really good in the second half. My point being, when Purdue has lost, which hasn't been often this year, only twice, the other team's guard play was at an absolute another level. Um, so it, I guess what I'm saying is it certainly it can happen. We saw it happen last year against Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, but to answer your question directly, yes, I do feel really good about Purdue's guard play. Uh, again, especially when they've gone head-to-head against what I consider to be the best in the country in Arizona. Rob Blackman is our guest. Rob, there were times, and I think this would have been maybe 2012, maybe 2013, 
give or take. And it's been few and far between, right? But there were times where impatience and chatter amongst the fan base at Purdue made it seem like the university probably never felt this way. The athletic department probably never felt this way. But it felt like there was at one point in time over the last 15 years a hot seat moment or two for Matt Painter. But Purdue had the foresight or maybe they never wavered in their mission of this is the guy we're going to give him time. We're going to let him build the proper culture. We're going to let him build recruiting classes. And we're going to let him turn Purdue into a steady horse in the national conversation. When you look to your counterparts to the South, and I understand that maybe those would push back and say expectations are different down in Indiana, and it needs to be win now or get out of town. Is there something to be said about it's only been four seasons. Yes, the transfer portal was there, but maybe at some point it's time to give a longer leash and let a culture really be established or reestablished again. Do you do you believe in that philosophy, and do you feel like that well-served Purdue over maybe times where there were whispers of doubts about Matt Painter? Well, I won't, uh, Jimmy, I won't speak to Indiana's situation because I'm obviously not close to that. I only see it from afar like everyone else. But you are correct on on Coach Paint. I mean, here, look, here are the hard facts, and I think I remember this correctly. 2013, Purdue, I think, finished two games below 500. 2014, I'm almost certain Purdue finished two games below 500. So you went back-to-back years where you didn't even reach 500 uh, for your season. That first year, Purdue played in the CBI lost in a home game in the CBI, and then the next year didn't even play in any type of postseason uh, action. So uh, if ever there were a time for the administration to, uh, yeah, say maybe this isn't the right direction for the program, it would have been that. Uh, but they did not. Uh, and, you know, give, some, give credit to, to, to the late Morgan Burke, who was the athletic director at that point, uh, for sticking with Coach Painter and giving him an opportunity to, to turn that thing around. And obviously it's worked because – uh, Purdue's been to the tournament every single year ex- except for the COVID year uh, when no one went to the tournament since then. So my point being, look, I, every situation is unique and different. I have no idea what's going on inside the the hallways of, of Assembly Hall and Indiana University, so I'm not going to speak to that. But, yes, from a Purdue standpoint, I think it's safe to say it worked out just fine. I mean, think about this. With that win last night, Matt Painter tied Lou Henson uh, for, uh, for fifth most uh, wins ever Big Ten games only in the history of the Big Ten. So think about that. <laughs> so, so you had a guy who back in the you know 2012-2013 was having troubles just finding his way to 500. Well, now you have a guy that's is now the fifth most winningest coach in the history of Big Ten basketball. So certainly patience paid off in that particular instance for Purdue. Um, and uh, again, that's all I'll speak to is Purdue's Purdue side of things because it, se- it seemed to have worked out quite well here especially these last handful of years where not only is Purdue playing at a magical level, but, I mean, my gosh, you've been ranked number one in the country now for three straight seasons. Uh, that, that, that's, that is a reward there, obviously, uh, for saying you, you stuck with Matt Painter through the tough times, and now you're, seeing, you're reaping the rewards of that here uh, later in his career. Rob, which was more – Rob Blackman, the voice of the Purdue Boilermakers, is our guest. Which to you last night was more impressive? The efficiency that Purdue played, especially late in the first, to kind of get themselves that halftime cushion, or the response they had towards Indiana getting the lead within single digits and Purdue then pushing it back up, back over 20? 
Yeah, not so surprised offensively with the way Purdue handled its business, especially late in the first half. I mean, look, Purdue is the number two team in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency. Purdue is normally really, really good on the offensive end. They, they have been all season. The numbers would bear that out. Um, but even in the second half, Jake, you know, and, and Coach Paint talked to us about this on our postgame interview. Even though Indiana cut that thing to nine there early in the second half, if you go back and look at Purdue's first three possessions offensively, they were great possessions. They just missed shots. Uh, you had three open shots. I think it was two hook shots, I think, by Zach and, and an open three. Um, so you ran good offense. You got a great shot all three times. You just missed them. And wouldn't you know it, you go the other end, and Indiana makes a couple of shots from guys that, let's be honest, had not been making shots. I mean, Trey Galloway comes into that game as a 27% three-point shooter and knocks in back-to-back threes. So you felt, even though that, even though that deficit got cut to nine, at least me personally, I still never felt like you know Purdue's in trouble here. Purdue's running great offense. They're getting open shots. The law of averages says you're going to start making those shots. Purdue's the best field goal percentage team in the Big Ten. So if water's going to find its level, then you'll eventually start making those shots, which they did. And when you look at Indiana's numbers, they have not been a good, a good shooting team this year. Across the board, they haven't been good at shooting the basketball. So you figured, again, water eventually going to find its level. And it did. Um, so, yeah, I just – I know a lot of Purdue fans got a little nervous there early in the second half. Uh, but to be very honest, I just kind of felt like, hey, this, this is going fine for Purdue. They're getting the shots they want. They're, you know, they're eventually going to make them. Indiana's probably shooting the ball a little better that now than they, they're going to the rest of the ball game, which turned out to be true. So that's just kind of how I looked at those – really those first, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of the second half. And what's next on the docket now for Purdue, Rob? I don't have the schedule right in front of me. Sure, sure. At Iowa, 2 o'clock Saturday. Uh, Purdue beat Iowa earlier in the year. That was way back in early December. Uh, beat them pretty handily, 87-68. So Iowa's always a different animal at home, though, because of their off, how good they are offensively. They're not, they're not a good defensive team. They would be the first to admit that. But they do have enough firepower to outscore you and beat you in, in a track meet. So that uh, – just it'll be another challenge, man. Welcome to the Big Ten. Rob, appreciate the time as always. And certainly you said at Iowa, right? You got to get some made rights. Are you going to get made rights in Iowa? You know what? My biggest concern and my biggest beef right now with Iowa City, uh, my all-time favorite restaurant in there, the Iowa River Power Company, they shut their doors in early December. They are no longer in business. So my favorite restaurant in Iowa City is closed. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do now. I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed. Have you that, had actually. made rights? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I thought we got one. Maybe you weren't with us when we were at Iowa once in Marshalltown, not far from Newton. Uh, I mean, if you got to go 45 minutes to Marshalltown, I'm sure they got it made right in Iowa City, but it's a loose meat sandwich. They're, they have them in Ohio, but they're basically an Iowa thing. And you got to get just, just. I'm telling you right now, made right. Just go in and say, I need a, a made right, um, juicy with cheese, and then you'll text me and say that I'm a hero. Hold on, I'm writing this down. Made right, juicy with or wet. Cheese. Just say wet. That means wet. like they put okay. the 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 grease meat in with it. Wet. Ooh, I and, love a, I love a good grease meat. And then you get the then you get the cheese over the top of it, and then afterwards I'll give you Dr. Mottman's name, the cardiologist that I use. <laughs> Yes, chunks of lard floating <laughs> through my veins. That's right. That's right. We'll get you taken care of, Rob. You know I do you right. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Thank All right. You. Enjoy, man. We'll talk to you. <laughs> See you guys. All right, Rob Blackman, the voice of the Purdue Boilermakers. We come back.
Uh, coming up about 10 minutes from now, we're going to talk to Matt Miller from ESPN. More on the Ursay story and the Pacers news with Siakam, at least the rumors. So it's a rumor-filled day, maybe. Uh, all of that as the show continues here on a Wednesday. Regarding Jim Ursay, the Colts have issued a statement earlier this morning about the TMZ report, quote, Mr. Ursay continues to recover from his respiratory illness. We will have no further comment on this per- on his personal health, and we continue to ask that Jim and his family's privacy be respected, end quote. I uh, certainly understand that. There are going to be those that question because of, uh, you know, just the the stability or the future of the franchise and the public involvement thereof, uh, but certainly understand the Colts on that standpoint. Again, TMZ reporting an overdose and Narcan administered that sent him to a hospital on December 8th. He was at the Colts' home game against the Pittsburgh Steelers on December 16th. That, for all intent and purposes, was around the time of his last public appearance, and the Colts have issued now more than one statement that he is battling a respiratory illness that has him hospitalized today. Matt Miller is with ESPN Draft Analyst next. Man on a hump day, it's a busy day. You got the Jim Ursay news. And listen, I want to be open with everybody. Um, there is a there's a delicate balance that that rests, and I don't know, I don't know that I trust myself, admittedly. Um we are paid in this position to be able to have the discrepancy or to understand the lines versus responsibility and rumor and report, et cetera. And I think that we journalistically did that in not reporting the information about Jim Irsay when it was strictly rumor. There is also a very slippery slope that enters into when it comes to Jim Irsay and the information about his health, because I do understand and respect that his family and et cetera, when they're asking for privacy, I totally understand that. I also understand that there are those that are going to ask for or expect a a more honest description as to his status because of the fact that he, to a large extent, the Colts are a public commodity because they do accept and are subsidized with public tax dollars. And I do believe that that changes a little bit the dynamic of all of it. But in the end, independently, he is still a person with you know HIPAA and everything else, and I understand all of it. It's very complex. It's very detailed. Uh, joining us now on the program, Matt Miller is a draft analyst for ESPN. Matt, before we get into the draft, I, I, I guess because it's the elephant in the room, and I certainly am not under any sort of expectation that you would be an expert regarding NFL ownership and Jim Irsay and the TMZ report and those things. Generically speaking, I guess I'll say that, do you think that the league, as we know that Jim Mercer is hospitalized, according to the Indianapolis Colts, with a respiratory illness, we know that he, based on the TMZ report, overdosed on December 8th, but he was at the Colts game on December the 16th. So it does not appear as though this hospitalization is at least in continuous related to the December 8th overdose situation. But generically speaking, the league itself, when it comes to owners and owners that have health situations, does the league get involved in any way, shape, or form over the length of time if an owner is not able to be around their franchise on a day-to-day? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a situation where it's almost like the government. You need continuity of government, right? And so I think it's uh, what is the plan? You know, who is assuming day-to-day control? Obviously, you know, Chris Ballard is is there and is, you know, serving as the general manager, and, and that part of it is, is running. But what about the business side? And I, I think that's the side where there's not as much um, I was, uh, transparency team to team, you know, of, okay, who, who steps up if the owner's incapacitated for, for an amount of time? And I, I think, you know, we've seen that with some of the other teams. Uh, I know in Buffalo, uh, you know, the owner had to take some time off because of a health uh, issue. And they said, okay, well, that's a husband wife team running, running the show there at Buffalo. So it's, they, they've got the husband to take care of things while the wife is incapacitated. So, um, the league's got to be involved, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, from a player standpoint, the league is so involved. Anytime anything like, you know, is going on off the field, um, I know with ownership we haven't seen the same uh, standards, I would say, uh, towards, you know, what's expected of them off the field or away from the field. But, yeah, I would think the NFL has a lot more information than any of us have at this time. And I'm like you guys, you know, I saw the, I saw the tweet this morning and have been I've been looking at you know people I follow who cover the Colts on a daily basis to see what information they have about this. I guess the other question, Matt, and, and I don't want to put you in a bad spot, so feel free to say, dude, I have no idea because maybe it is different from team to team. I don't know. Um, when it comes to like transfer of ownership, I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay. Do leases that teams have with cities and those sorts of things typically bind? from one owner to the next or do they kind of get does that go out the window when there's a change in ownership the only situation i'm aware of where like where i know what happened was when uh robert Kraft bought the patriots and he bought basically he got all the leases you know it comes with it so that would be a really good question um i think you could you know maybe look at something like carolina denver you know those would be the most recent teams where you could look at that and say okay what happened you know, uh, what, what happened with those leases? Because that would be that would, it's definitely a really interesting question. Yeah, so I'm, like if I wanted to buy too, like, a I want to dig in on that too. Yeah. yeah, so like if I wanted to buy a team, for example, let's just say, Matt, you and I, you hit the Powerball tomorrow, and you call me and you go, hey, man, you were super cool on the radio together, so let's go into ownership. And I go, yeah, cool. So yeah. And, and so you say, listen, I've got, I've got a team that I want to buy, and it is in, um, you know, Charlotte. And I say, you know, I'm more of an IndyCar than a NASCAR guy. I don't know that I want a team in Charlotte. We can't just buy them theoretically and move it. We would basically, one would assume, have to honor whatever the right. agreement is with Charlotte until it expires, right? That's how I understand it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right, let's get to the draft. I'm curious about this. Colts are going to be drafting, you know, we know now, two-thirds of the way through, you know, the respective round because they had a good year. Um the Colts have needs in a lot of areas. I'll begin with the generic question, which would be this, Matt Miller. You are, if you are an owner or a general manager looking at this draft, you are salivating if you're a guy with a need at what position because this draft is richest where? Wide receiver. And uh, I'm not just saying that because you are a super cool guy on the radio Thank who you. I like to talk to, but uh, wide receiver is it. And I, I sent out, a, a, if people are still on Twitter or X or whatever you call that, I, I tweeted this yesterday. We can see three wide receivers and three quarterbacks going the first six picks of this draft. I mean, it is an incredibly deep wide receiver draft. It's also incredibly talented. So normally we would say, oh, it's deep at wide receiver. There could be seven, eight guys in the first round. That is true. 
but it's also that top-end talent. Marvin Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, Roma Dunze. I have those three guys ranked in my top six players overall. So it is a great year for wide receiver play. And then I would say, you know, that tier two, Keon Coleman of Florida State, Adnai Mitchell and Xavier Worthy from Texas, Brian Thomas Jr. from LSU. Uh, it, is, it is a really, really good uh, wide receiver class. It's a really good offensive tackle class. I think we could see 32 picks in the first round. Half those could be wide receivers and offensive tackles, and it wouldn't surprise me. Matt Miller is our guest, covers the NFL draft at large for ESPN. Matt, you mentioned wide receiver being the treasure of riches for teams, especially in the first round. You mentioned the crown jewel as well in Marvin Harrison Jr. So a rapid fire to kind of get to the big question. Where do you have him pegged right now? I know it's January, but where do you have him pegged in terms of position where he's likely to go? Yeah, he's my number two overall player, so he's not going to be there uh, at 15. Obviously, obviously. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, he should go, even understanding we're probably going to see quarterbacks go one, two. I think at three, the New England Patriots is where that conversation starts, depending on what they're going to do. At quarterback, we'll see. They just announced, you know, Gerard Mayo is head coach today. They don't have a general manager. So I think three with New England is where you at least start having that conversation about – hey, we need a quarterback, but this guy is generationally talented. You really can't, can't go wrong here. I think, he's, I think he's the safest player in the draft. Like the, the one guy where you draft him in the worst-case scenario is he's just really, really good. You know, with Caleb Williams, with quarterbacks, as you guys know, there's always the boomer bust factor for every quarterback. And, and Indy drafted arguably the greatest quarterback prospect in the last 50 years in Andrew Luck, and there was a lot of good, a lot of bad or not a lot of bad, there was some bad, um, and, and his career didn't last very long. So there's always going to be that scenario with quarterbacks. With these wide receivers, like if Harrison's not an all-pro, I'll be shocked. What would be, and I'm not saying the Colts are going to do this, but the joking speculation has been around since Marvin Harrison Jr. stepped onto the scene a couple of years ago. So let's say it's just a generic team, say, I don't know, picking 15th or 16th. If they wanted <laughs> to move up for a player like Marvin Harrison Jr., what is the cost, A, in your mind, assuming we're just talking about draft capital, and B, is his generational talent worth the cost compared to the overall depth of the wide receiver class as it pertains to the first round? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the cost is going to be multiple first-round picks to go from a generic hypothetical pick, a, a 15 or, or so overall to get. I mean, you would have to go to two to ensure you get him. And right. that's just, yeah, you're talking multiple first-round picks. You know, that's a, that's a trade you only make for a quarterback. And so to, the second part of your question is, is he talented enough to justify the cost? Not in a situation where we do have a year with historically good wide receiver talent, in my opinion. And also, I mean, Malik Neighbors would be the number one receiver in almost every draft class other than this one. Uh, Roma Dunze would be the number one receiver in almost every draft class except for this one. Keon Coleman, uh, you know, would be in play – in most draft classes, he would be wide receiver one or wide receiver two, I think. So it's just a, it's such a talented year that I don't think you can justify the trade to two. Uh, now, if you are going to lose Michael Pittman Jr. in free agency, or even if you can keep him and say, hey, we just, we got Josh Downs, we got Pittman, but we need another guy. You're still, you're looking at like Arizona at four, the Chargers at five, the Giants at six, the Titans at seven, Atlanta. Every wide receiver in Atlanta is a free agent except for Drake London. Uh, Chicago at nine, the Jets at ten. Like every team needs a wide receiver from four to ten. So it's uh, 
the bad news for the Colts is we could see a very you know quick run of wide receiver talent. Now, Matt Matt Miller, ESPN, is our guest. I'm assuming that you come to Indy for the combines, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, are you required? And, and this is you live in what city? If you don't mind me asking, I live in Joplin, Missouri. Joplin, Missouri. Okay, uh, I have a friend from Joplin, Missouri, by the way. Um, okay, so Joplin—that's the hometown of Mark Twain, is it not? Or is that Hannibal, uh, is, Missouri? It, that's Hannibal, other okay, side sorry. of the state. Sorry. Yep. Okay, so let, we'll just say Kansas City. Okay. So Carmel, Indiana is like the Overland Park of Kansas City, just to give you a a reference here, right? It's the suburb. Now, in Carmel, Indiana, if you're coming in town for the Combine, there's a a bar and restaurant. Now, it says it's temporarily closed. That might be due to construction. But there's a joint called Matt the Miller's. Are you required to go there? (laughs) I've never been. I get sent that photo all the time. I think there are some in Ohio as well um, because people will send me that photo on, on social media. Um, and all the time, like, hey, is this your is this your spot? I'm like, I've never been, but I got to go one of these days. I'd I gotta, go in there and throw my weight around a little bit, right? I mean, you, right? you got to, right? Surely you get a free beer if they, like, read your driver's <laughs> I license. I would hope, it, right? You know, that would be great. And yeah. it's got to be a Miller, by the way. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> Matt, uh, the opposite question of the one from which I let off, and that is this. You are going into this draft, the 2024 NFL draft, you are a franchise that is in dire need of this position, and you are absolutely losing sleep because you're like, this is just the driest draft at this position. I can't believe this is the year that I'm in need of it. That position's what? Linebacker. Uh, off-ball linebacker. This is not a good year. I don't I don't have one rated in my top 50 right now. Um, it is just such a, a weak year. And there are good players. Like, there are going to be guys that are drafted, you know, Junior Colson from Michigan, Jalen Ford from Texas. They're going to be round two, round three guys that play as rookies, but they all have enough question marks in their game that you're not drafting them high. So uh, I would also I would throw out interior offensive line. It is not a good year. You know, there's going to be guys drafted at tackle who get moved into guard or center, and, and then maybe they get drafted a little bit higher than, than what we're talking about right here. But for I'm talking like guys who played center or played guard in college. You know, we might have two or three in the first two rounds. So – pretty weak group uh, there and it's a weak group of running back which i know is pertinent with jonathan taylor being a free agent uh it, it's we're not going to see two running backs drafted in the first round this year like we did last year i i will be shocked guys i'll i'll, I'll buy a round of beers for all of us at, at matt the millers if a running back's drafted in the first round you know the taylor was interesting because i remember this time a year ago matt we thought like jonathan taylor was kind of crazy for starting to insinuate trying to get big, you know, 12, 14 million a year at the running back position. And then I was stunned when the Colts extended him at the, you know, they basically gave him the amount he wanted, um, which maybe that's why. Maybe they were able to look at it and go, look, there aren't a million of these guys growing on trees, especially this year, right? So maybe that helped him yeah. out. And it was the the seller's market into essentially for free agents at running back. I'm curious of this in your opinion, and we'll say the last five years or so, is there a player, Matt, that came into the league that kind of broke the mold at their position and thus, as a result, changed the trajectory of the way that position was analyzed or drafted? In other words, they didn't have the things going into it that people anticipated was necessary at that position, but their particular success then opened the door for other players to be analyzed that would not have been before that player was drafted. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's Patrick Mahomes. I really do. Um, Mahomes coming out of Texas Tech. Like, I wish people could be honest with themselves and we could talk about Mahomes the way we did in March of 2017 instead of how we have to now because um, I had him rated as someone that would be a good starter. But he was coming out of a system he'd never called a play in the huddle. Uh, he had never been under center. Uh, it, like, there was so much he hadn't done. And so you had all these questions about this dude who played in this backyard football kind of system his lower body mechanics were terrible he was everything was off platform he's not incredibly fast and it felt like every play he was like running around drifting away from pressure and you watched him and you thought okay this kid has the strongest arm I'd maybe seen at that time uh fantastic field vision but I mean, there were a lot of questions about, does that kind of football really work in the NFL? And again, let's remember it's 2017. We're coming off Manning and Brady and, you know, all these like pocket passers. And then you've got Mahomes, who's 6'2", 215 pounds. You know, he's not your foot five, 230-pound, you know, Greek god playing quarterback. So he's, he's certainly changed things. And I think to the point that we do see, you know, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, uh, Jordan Love right now, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts, players like that who are, are so good at making plays second effort or making plays off platform are, are getting a chance now. Whereas I think before Mahomes, a lot of those guys, we and I used to say it, like that, that style just doesn't work. So I think the NFL has really changed to embrace, you know, that style of play. NFL draft analyst Matt Miller of ESPN is our guest. Matt, I've never shied away from this. I'm an offensive first guy. I, I love the sexiness of that aspect of the NFL like a lot of people do. So when I see a first-round pick utilized on a defensive weapon, I'm not always bought in, but eventually I'll get there. That is to say, let's say the Colts decide to focus on defense with their pick in the first round. When you look specifically at cornerbacks or an edge rusher, where is the most bang for your buck at this stage if they decide to go that direction with their first pick? Yeah, I think at 15, like we talked about, we're going to see a lot of quarterbacks, wide receivers, offensive tackles come off the board. That's good news if you are, you know, a defensive mentality in this draft. I think Tyrion Arnold, the corner from Alabama, you're probably crossing your fingers hoping he's there. He's He's been my top-rated corner since midseason. Uh, he is fantastic. I mean, super athletic, a great tackler, uh, he's smart. He's poised. He's six foot two, two hundred pounds. I mean, he is—he's like ready to go. He—he he could walk in and be, you know, rookie of the year type corner. I, I really think he's that good. Uh, if you're looking at edge rusher, Dallas Turner from Alabama is going to be off the board by fifteen. But uh, Leatu Latu from UCLA, as long as the medicals check out, uh, he had to retire medically for a year because of a neck injury at Washington. Goes to UCLA. He's played the last two years. He has 23 and a half sacks uh, in two years. He had 21 and a half tackles for a loss this past year. He's 6'5", 260. Like, he's, he's ready to go. So as long as the medicals look good on, on Latu, that is – you know, he's not going to be the sexiest guy at the combine in terms of twitch and 40 time, but watch his tape. And there's not a better pass rusher in the country in terms of hand use and understanding leverage and angles. I mean, he's a professional path rusher coming out of college. I'm going to ask the dumbest question you're going to get all day, Matt. For those, myself included, that hear the term but aren't totally sure what it means, elaborate twitch. Yeah, so it's that ability to go from a standing position to a moving position. How fast does that happen? You know, when So you, basically you like know, hip like, swivel? I mean, it, it, 
or like first step quickness burst, you know, to gotcha. me, twitch is like when you have a muscle that's not moving and you fire how fast it fire. Um, so for pass rushers, you know, think about how fast Aaron Donald gets into the backfield. Uh, that, that to me is twitch. Do you find with linemen, offensive linemen, that there are guys that are either great run blockers and terrible in the pass or vice versa, or, or are we in an era now with just the overall athleticism of big guys that it's usually pretty true for a guy either side or either discipline? No, I think coming out of college, there's a lot of guys who are one or the other. And you, we're seeing more athleticism on the offensive line than I've ever seen before. However, there's, you know, you're coming out of, like, okay, if you go to Notre Dame or Ohio State or Iowa, Alabama, you're probably pretty well versed in everything. But, you know, if you're coming out of a lot of other schools, you know, BYU and Houston, they both have a left tackle this year that could be drafted pretty highly. But, you know, they're running spread all day like that's all they do so these guys are not used to nfl style blocking in the run game so i think that is you know a a big question mark for a lot of these guys and it it does seem like run blocking especially is just not being coached very well at the college level there's a lot of a lot of really really good athletes but when it comes to the run game you know their their accuracy at the second level is bad they're stiff uh it just it hasn't clicked completely so there are, we could spend hours talking about tackling and, and offensive line play have gotten so much worse in football, um, and especially in college football. But run blocking, is it feels like a lost art right now. What position, Matt Miller, ESPN, what position that has – what position amongst the camp misses has the highest percentage of miss? Oh, man. I mean, that quarterback definitely does. Uh, I mean, it's it's almost 50-50 at this point, especially right. drafted early. Um, I think that's a big one. I still think that corner is maybe the second hardest position for players to transition to the to the NFL because in college you can so often you can get away with just being a great athlete. And in the NFL, it's so much about pattern recognition and you know understanding leverage and where you're supposed to be. And so much of the NFL right now is option routes. You know, it's a – the wide receiver is reading you as a defender and making a decision based off that. And that is so hard to cover. So I, I think corners getting to be one of those spots too, where, you know, we like Derek Stingley jr. In Houston really struggled as a rookie. Well, this year he was fantastic. And you could see that he just needed time to like almost mentally catch up after not playing a lot his last year at LSU. So uh, corner is one of those things. we got to give guys time to acclimate. And which position historically, Matt, allows you the biggest flexibility of gamble because it has the highest percentage of diamond and the rough guys. I, running back is definitely up there, but outside of running back, I mean, edge rusher, you know, we're, you can find good edge rushers uh, all throughout. I mean, look, the Rams rolled guys out in the first round of the playoffs. The, you know, the Colts haven't found one in 15 years. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on there. But <laughs> it's not for lack of trying. They've thrown right. so many first and second round picks at guys. Uh, he's going to hit on one eventually. Uh, uh, I feel good about that. But I, I think it's knowing your type. You know, is, that's a big part of it. If you are convicted in the, the type of pass rusher you need, you can find a guy that fits that mold. And you can find them in, in rounds, you know, three, four, five, six, seven. It's the first round guy is harder because you're expecting, you know, that guy to play 80% of the snaps and become a pro bowler. That part's harder, but finding a, you know, a James Houston, who was really good for the lions 
as, you know, I think a seventh round pick, like you can, you can find those complimentary pieces pretty late in the draft. It's so interesting to me, Matt, because, you know, there are like where a guy is selected oftentimes then sets the standard on how they're judged. Like Quiddy Pay and Dio are, they're sufficient players. I mean, they're, they're, they're good players that are capable of having really good games, but because they were first or second round investments, they're held to a different standard than if they had been drafted in the same spot, or excuse me, if they had the same numbers and were drafted in the sixth round, we'd be sitting here talking about what a great pick they were. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, and interestingly enough, guys drafted in the first round will always get more opportunities. You know, um, if Carson Wentz was a seventh-round pick, he'd be he'd have a, a side job. He'd be selling real estate right now. You know, but you're a first-round pick. You're going to continue to get so many more opportunities. So um, it, it definitely, the expectations are higher, but – you know, somebody's going to keep giving you a chance because at one point you had the talent, you were seen as good enough to be a first-round pick. He is Matt Miller, covers the NFL Draft for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at NFL Draft Scout. Matt, thanks so much for making the time, and hopefully this is the first of a handful of conversations in the countdown to April. You bet, guys. Thanks so much. See you at Matt the Millers, right? Exactly. By the way, not all, if you will, Reporters are created equal. Sometimes you get a question where you're like, wait, really? Did they, did they do homework? There was a a doozy administered <laughs> today. Did you see this, Jimmy? Today? Uh, oh, I thought you meant in the last 24 hours. Well, right? maybe it was yesterday. Okay. Then yes, I did see it. A doozy <laughs> where you're like, wait, what? Can we can we get better like clearance here on who's asking questions? We'll get to that in a bit. Kristen Airy joins us next. Last night, I had mentioned that with the Pascal Siakam rumors, and I I get it, Jalen Smith's on an expiring deal, and so too is Buddy Heald. The the rumors, of course, are Bruce Brown and three first-round picks. One of those is a pick that, like, they have acquired from Oak City. There are all kinds of factors in terms of the picks, but basically, three first-rounders, Bruce Brown, and then a variation of players to make the salaries match for Pascal Siakam. This is what's been reported. Latest report is that Obi Toppin or Jordan Wara would be thrown in along with maybe Jalen Smith. I think the safe reality is to say that Indiana is willing to part with somebody if they are on an expiring contract deal. But the danger there is that so too on an expiring contract deal is Pascal Siakam. And I would just be very hesitant to give up too much of my future for a guy that unless there is a guarantee that he is part of my future. If Pascal Siakam is coming to Indiana and doing so with no guarantee that he is going to re-sign long-term here, I would have a lot of hesitation about it because why would you mortgage, and I know that it's expiring deals you're giving up, but why would you get rid of, say, the, the first-rounders, for example, and just throw them out the window. Uh, you know, that, that those are the questions that I have. I don't but, envision that taking place, by the way. I trust the Pacers enough that if this deal actually winds up happening, it will have been with some type of verbal or handshake or whatever agreement, or maybe one already in writing you that Pascal Siakam's coming to town, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Right, you would hope that, that it is a long-term thing. Uh, joining us now, you will hear him on the broadcast. Tomorrow night, Pacers in Sacramento. Chris Denary, the television voice of the Indiana Pacers, joining us. Uh, Chris, first off, looks like you guys had some fun on the off day, right? 
We had a great time. Uh, we uh, took a little road trip to Sonoma and uh, went to a couple of wineries and uh, was fascinating. I, you know, you've been out. I, we passed uh, the raceway out there, which, you know, I've never been to. And boy, it's it's out there sort of in the middle of nowhere, Sonoma. But uh, yeah, we had a great time. I mean, very rarely uh, do you get multiple off days between games on the road. And uh, we definitely wanted to take advantage of that and, and really had a great time. Now, the Sonoma's what, two hours from Sacramento, roughly? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was about two hours. It was uh, was a lot uh, longer on the way back because it was sort of rainy and and uh, traffic. Uh, it probably took us closer. It seemed like the three hours to get back because uh, we were we were stopped along the highway uh, quite a bit. But yeah, it was about a couple hours uh, from uh, Sacramento to Sonoma. Chris, the you were coming, of course before that Salt Lake City so let's talk about the Utah game I thought it was interesting I know Rick Carlisle was on with the guys this morning but seemed to me and I don't blame the philosophy here if this is indeed the philosophy Chris but you tell me if I'm off base in assuming this was the case you're going on a back-to-back you had played Denver a really good team the night before and I thought played them pretty well uh and then you know Jokic just showed why he's you know an MVP level player down the stretch of that game but you go in the, a day later and you take on the Jazz, and I felt like with Rick Carlisle, knowing it was a long trip, just once the game got into like double digits or even close to 20, just at that point, you know what, we're going to take advantage of getting some other guys some minutes and just kind of saving legs a little bit. You think that – was that basically the thought process? Well, yeah. I mean, you went into the game with with uh, three starters sitting out. I mean, we all know Halliburton's out uh, with his hamstring, and then you had Bruce Brown, second night of a back to back. He he missed five games earlier with a bone bruise in his right knee, and Neesmith missed his second straight game. So already you've got three starters out, and so you've got to dig a little deeper into the bench. and And I thought through. I'm going to say the first 20 minutes, uh, about the three or four minute mark of the first half, they, you know, it was a five, six, seven point game. And then Utah extended it to 14 at the half. And then they just ran away uh, from the Pacers in the third quarter. And you just get to a point now, you know, some people will look last night, Sacramento had a 22 point lead uh, in Phoenix and got beat. The difference is the Pacers were down 20 plus and they're on the road against a, a Utah team that's playing really well uh, uh, right now. I mean, they've won nine straight at home, nine of ten overall. So it, it just got to the point of no return where you were in trouble, and it made a lot of sense, uh, you know, knowing this is a long road trip. Let, let's see what the young guys can do. Let's see what Jairus Walker and Ben Shepard can do in an extended period of time because there, there does become a point, unfortunately, where it, it's just out of hand. And I think it was more important to give some guys some rest, uh, knowing that you had a couple of days off between games, and let's see what the young guys can do. Chris, I ask this having nothing to do with the Bruce Brown reports of being linked to a trade. Okay, so that's not why I'm asking this, but but I'm genuinely curious because you see every game. Since Bruce Brown has been acquired, and I know there's been, you know, he's missed a few games, but what areas has he acclimated well and what areas is there still a meshing period that needs to take place with Bruce Brown? Well, I think that always happens. I'm a big Bruce Brown guy. I really like what he what he is, what he does. Uh, I think he's been really good in the locker room. 
you know, in Denver the other night, uh, you know, I thought he had a fantastic game and, and he's been solid all year long. I mean, he's not going to be a guy that averages 18, 20 points a game, but he's right around 12 points, four rebounds, assists. He's a good defensive player. And, you know, just the thing that I've noticed is, is with this group is um, it's a very close group and, and I think a very deep group and they enjoy uh, playing, you know, with each other and the camaraderie that they have. So all of those things, you know, go into effect. I mean, I, I, you know, I have no knowledge of anything that's going on. I read everything like everybody else does. I'm sure the players, you know, in, in this day and age in media, it's all out there every day. Um, you know, reports here, reports there. Um, so, you know, you just have to plug forward. If, if you're players, uh, you, you've just got to move forward. And, you know, whatever's going to happen, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. If it does happen, I mean, I think, you know, these guys, you know, they know that's a part of the deal. Um, you know, teams are, are trying to get better to figure out, you know, what they're going to do. And we're in that situation now in the NBA. We're in, you know, a month uh, to the trade deadline. What, about three weeks now? Uh, it's it's now before the All-Star break, whereas in the old days it was after the All-Star break. So, uh, But but I, I've been a big Bruce Brown. I thought it was a, a really good addition to the team. Um, you You saw, I think, on Sunday – what he means, what he meant to Denver. I mean, the way the way he was received in that building for a guy playing on another team was fantastic. Uh, and, and I think that has carried over into his relationship with his new team, the Pacers. And, you know, Aaron Neesmith said, look, I, I've really I've, I picked his brain. I, I want to be a champion. I want to know what it takes uh, to be a champion. And, and I think that's one of those things – that Bruce has been able to share with his teammates, and I think that's really, really important. TV voice of the Indiana Pacers, Kristen Airy, is our guest. Chris, we're quickly approaching two years since the Pacers made the acquisition, sending Sabonis out west to acquire Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald from the Sacramento Kings. Clearly, without Halliburton, it doesn't have as much of an impact as it would on a normal game day from this storyline. But from your coverage standpoint, how big approaching two years removed is this story still to these two franchises and to this matchup yeah it's too bad that he can't play i know he'd he'd really love to play uh you know here in sacramento uh you know i think it's 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 definitely helped both franchises uh you know demontis sabonis is an all-star was an all-star in indiana all-star now in sacramento um you know gave them a presence inside that they needed and they had to part ways with an outstanding player in, in Ty Alliburton. And I think it's helped Indiana. Tyrese has become the face of the franchise on and off the floor. Uh, we, we all can look at all the numbers and all the things that he generates and he makes his teammates better. It's, it's really, to me, it's unlocked Miles Turner. He's become a, a much better player over the last two years, posting career high numbers than maybe he would have without Tyrese. And, and so, you know, that's why teams make trades is both sides are looking to get better and, and looking to maybe do something different. And that's exactly what Sacramento did, and it's exactly what Indiana did. Um, you know, the, the wild card in this is, and it, it's Buddy Heald, and for whatever reason, and, and I don't know all the, the things that went into it, is there's, there's some animosity with Sacramento fans and Buddy, and I, I'm a big Buddy proponent. I love the way he plays. I love the the attitude that he plays with. Uh, he's a really, really good teammate. So 
Uh, I'm sure Buddy will be looking forward to tomorrow night's game as well because um, I really think he's blossomed, uh, you know, with the Pacers and 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 does a lot more than I thought he did. You know, I just thought of him as a three point shooter, uh, but but I've seen Buddy over the last year and a half, almost two years now. You know, the passing uh, he's gotten you know better defensively. He's got more of an all around game than I think uh, we all gave credit to him you know, when he was here in Sacramento. Chris, in the Utah game, Chris Denary, the television voice of the Pacers, is our guest. When Jarris Walker got in the game, I, you know, I'll admit, I'm still a little bit, I'll use the word frustrated, at his, you can see that he has the ability to shoot the basketball, but I still, he looks to me at times like I did playing against Tony Barbie in open gym at North Central, right? Like the game is moving a little faster than, than I'm used to, and so I'm rushing bad shots. Like he seems a little out of rhythm at times, but the Utah game was the first time that I really saw an example of basketball instincts out of Jarris Walker, which sometimes are the hardest thing to teach a guy. And it does appear as though he has – a high, to use the term, basketball IQ of an understanding of seeing the game kind of before it happens. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I, I mean, he was a guy that uh, when he went to IMG Academy, he was on a very, very talented high school team uh, that had a lot of depth. And, and so early on, he he played a little bit of point guard there. And I think I think he has a recognition for the game that, you know, a lot of players don't have. Again, he's young. He played one year at the University of Houston, and so there's a lot of growth. And and making that move from, you know, Houston to the NBA, and even even those games he plays in the G League, there's a big difference between what you can do in the G League and and what you need to do in the NBA. I mean, case in point, uh, Oscar Sheebway is a tremendous rebounder, and and I thought he did a nice job the other night in the minutes that he got. But a couple of he tried to follow an offensive rebound, and there's Walker Kessler at seven foot blocking his shot. He was not. He does not run into that, uh, you know, on most G League nights. And so I think for for somebody like Jarris, he's continuing to learn. He's got veterans in front of him. Um, you know, the Pacers are in sixth in the Eastern Conference right now, holding on to that last playoff spot in the East. And so this is a team determined to get to the postseason. Uh, they'd like, you know, everybody has said if you could get into the plan, that would be the next step. And I would agree with that. But this is a team that feels like that they can be in the top six and guarantee them a playoff spot. And with the veterans that are ahead of him that I think have played well this year, it just makes it a little bit more difficult for Jarris to get on the floor. So all of those opportunities that you get, even in a game on Monday night that, you know, was well out of hand in the fourth quarter, those are still important moments. And again, as you said, you see what this guy possesses as a playmaker. I mean, he made some terrific passes that you just don't see guys his size make. So all of that is going to help him as he as he moves forward here early in his NBA career. Chris, when you're on the road, Chris Denary, our guest, if you were to, to take out like the the surrounding geography. So you're just going to take the physical structures, the houses, the roads, the bridges, the buildings, and you're going to like pick them up and move them and drop them, right? Those structures, the the place that looks looks the most like Indianapolis, Indiana. My my feeling is Sacramento is top 5 in the NBA 
of cities that just kind of look like Indianapolis in terms of their layout, their building sizes, their houses, etc. Agree or disagree? I would not disagree. I would not disagree. I mean, when when we were driving yesterday, now granted, you see some mountains, some hills, you you know, you've got the and we got to Sonoma and all you see is wine country, right? We don't we don't see that in Indiana, but but you're you're on a road and and it's it's not dissimilar uh, to what you see. I in fact said to the group, now this is uh, 50, almost 15 years ago uh, when I went with the Pacers to uh, China to Beijing and we played in the, the couple of games in season and I remember being in a van going out to the Great Wall and it was not dissimilar to looking out as if I was driving from Indianapolis to Anderson or to Muncie. It, honestly, it, it felt like that, just looking looking outside. And I, I would say in, in some respect, in certain areas, that would feel the same here around Sacramento. Now, of course, you head west towards San Francisco, and all of a sudden it's a little, it's different with water and the bay, all that kind of stuff. But but I would not disagree with you um, in, in that regard. You know what I say, Chris? It doesn't matter what city you're in in the United States now, you are within five minutes of a strip mall that has a suntan city, Qdoba, Bed Bath & Beyond, and uh, Jersey Mike's, right? Well, I'm very happy that, uh, again, they have a brand-new Golden One Center here, which is in downtown Sacramento. If, if people remember, they used to play at Arco Arena, which was more out in the suburbs. Uh, but here downtown, I mean, they've, they've got you know Starbucks, Chipotle. I mean, yep. all all within walking distance of the arena. So you're right. And I'm pretty happy. You give me those types of places in a CVS or a Walgreens or yeah. you know any of those places. If I have that within walking distance, I am happy. I, I'm with you, man. I, we've been to nine cities in the last three years, internationally speaking, and my job is to always find the Starbucks in the morning for when Shannon gets ready, and we've never been more than like a three-block walk. It's crazy, <laughs> right? Um, absolutely absolutely all right chris enjoy it enjoy the australian snacks that my buddy michael dropped off to you save me a couple of the vegemite chips which i'm the only one that likes anyway so you're good there hey, and we let will me see tell you, soon. you let me tell you those vegemite cheese they were like they're like cheese it's with vegemite mm-hmm. and and uh, i was devouring those on the way uh, <laughs> yeah. to the, the winery yesterday i, I everything i about Vegemite is, you know, Tolly Bevilacqua, who played for the Fever, and, and uh, you know, I traveled with the Fever for all those years, and she would always talk about Vegemite and give us Vegemite, and it was like, oh, I'm, I'm not eating this. Those Vegemite chips, Jake, they were pretty good. Chris, so Michael, <laughs> my, who my Australian buddy, for those that don't know, who is on the, he's traveling as a fan, and he left you a, a box of those chips that we're talking about that are Vegemite flavored. He was my spotter for the 500, as you recall, Chris. There was one time where I was late dropping them to you in turn three because I was eating a handful of those chips up in the perch in turn three. They came to me. I had to like, eat, you know, kill time in order to get rid of the chips. And then, talk, and so, you know, it all comes full circle, man. It all comes full circle. Yeah. And the other thing that he also gave us, so he gave us those, they're, they're uh, Vegemite cheese shapes, yep. are the Tim Tams. Oh, yeah. Those Tim Tams, the chocolate, oh, I mean, I'm telling you what, I, I, if, if he's, he, I think he's supposed to give me some ba- some things to bring back to you when we're in Phoenix. That's correct. If they're the Tim Tams, you aren't going to get them. I'm, I'm, <laughs> they're like I, Keebler's, I man. They're like Keebler yeah. fudge cookies with a soft chocolate interior. They're pretty good, man. Yeah. The, the Aussies know what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely.
All right, Chris, be safe. We'll talk to you, all right? All right, thanks, Jay. All right, Chris Denary, television voice of the Pacers. We come back, classic moment in media history. We'll explain. Every once in a while, you get people asking a question or reporting something where you're like, wait, what? Like, for example, you just heard Kevin mention the Toronto side of the Pascal Siakam trade. A guy in Toronto yesterday said that he thought that Daniel Tice could be on his way to Toronto via Indiana. Um, They got rid of him like five weeks ago. I had mentioned at one point what happens when you try to drop news people in to cover a sports story. I don't know if this is a news reporter, but it's fabulous. Todd Bowles, the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, fielding questions yesterday about the Bucs getting ready to go to Detroit to take on the Lions when this gym was dropped. It's uh, 13 in uh, Detroit, which doesn't compare to some of the temperatures the team had dropped to. Any special plans to acclimate the team to not only uh, endure, but perform in those kind of frigid temperatures should you face them in Detroit? You do know we play indoors, right? And they got a dome. I don't um, No, nothing planned. We're, we're indoors, and... We only have to be outside for 20 seconds getting off the bus, going under the thing, so we'll be okay. <laughs> hey, they've, the Lions have been an indoor team for like 75 years. Jimmy, your thoughts? I mean, top comment on Twitter. Follow-up question could have been asked. Sunday, you'll be facing Lions. These are notoriously dangerous beasts <laughs> weighing up to 450 pounds. How are you preparing for this tilt? <laughs> no raw meat, please. We're taking on the Lions. Uh, Jordan Cornett joins us next. He had some pointed words about Indiana at halftime last night. We'll get that and more. Two o'clock hour underway on a Wednesday. How are you? My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, the other voices you hear on this program. And joining us now on the show, I'm always happy when he can join us. You saw him last night and Jordan Cornett may have felt, I doubt through the television screen he felt it, but I gave him like an air virtual high five when they went to the halftime report after Indiana and Purdue's first half. And Jordan Cornett, you had very direct things to say, and I loved it because you were dead on just about Indiana's lackadaisical approach to the first half. I just thought, and granted, they made a run there to start the second half. But I thought Indiana looked totally unprepared and uninterested in the first half last night. And uh, I was relieved to see you say that, that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you basically saw had the same observation, right? Yeah, Jake, it's good to be on with you, Jimmy, and the boys. I uh, Look, I, I watch these games and just because I have the luxury and the luck to be able to sit up there at a desk and be on a national broadcast. I'm a fan like everybody else. And when I'm watching – I see it the same way the majority of people watch it and see it, and it was a flat performance. And it was a group that I felt like maybe history was lost upon these Hoosiers. The history of what Indiana basketball is and should be, uh, what this rivalry is, and what an opportunity is presented to them on their home floor to play against their heated rival, and an opportunity to knock off number two. And for them to be that flat going into the break, Look, I'm never going to support fans booing inside the building. You're all in this together when you're there and you're the fan base. But frustration, uh, that is to be expected when you look like that in that first half. And I just, in watching, there's a frustration for me who's neutral in the approach when watching. Just like, I can't believe Indiana's coming out like this. Now, I will also add, having Warren and Baco get in that early foul trouble, uh, I I thought Coach Woodson – made a a questionable decision to decide to sit them as long as he did, lacking the firepower and resistance on that team and depth uh, 
to say, I'm going to sit these guys for 10 minutes of regulation. It felt like the game was lost during that time. But the other guys that were on the floor, you got to compete at a higher level. I'm watching Zach Eady at seven foot four dive on the ball, dive on the floor for loose balls. At seven foot four, that's a long way down. That's the type of energy I want in a game like that. I thought the most encapsulating moment of the game, Jordan, was exactly that. You've got Zach Eady, the national player of the year, that's having a dominant performance, and there's a loose ball, and he's going down for it. And Kalel Ware, who is at his second stop because the coach at his first stop, I think, had issue with his energy at all times. It's kind of standing there watching him do it. And I thought that right there, like if you wanted to go and get Ansel Adams to take a photograph that encapsulates Indiana Purdue, that was it right there. In yeah, a moment. And, I, and I think that's where the look, I'm never going to question the ability of kids from 18 to 22 years old. You know, I wasn't an All American, so I'm not going to sit up there. Uh, from some ivory tower and throw stones. That would be inaccurate. That would be disingenuine. Uh, but the one thing I did every time I stepped on the floor was played with a great deal of effort because I understood the opportunity presented to me to represent the program I played for, which was Notre Dame. And I took great pride in that. And I'm watching that first half, and I'm thinking, does Indiana think they're playing, and I won't name a university to denigrate them, but are they think they're playing somebody lesser than their heated rival? I mean, I think about the moments in Indiana-Purdue – and I'm like, these guys aren't getting it. And so I felt the responsibility to speak for everybody watching because it, it, it's the same. I, Twitter rarely, let's put it this way, guys. Twitter rarely agrees with anything a broadcaster says or anybody says. And what everybody watching is saying, yeah, I agree with that Cornette guy. He might be an idiot, but he's right here. I think it was pretty obvious that's an unacceptable performance from the Hoosiers just in terms of uh, sheer effort. Jordan Cornette is our guest. Jordan, I agree with you and Jake on all points in regards to the effort level, in regards to the plays that you can easily point to, boom, 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 for where Purdue was more focused, more engaged, more electric than Indiana was over the course of that contest. That said, even if all those effort plays are made, my thought going into that game, albeit I was hopeful that they would hang around, was Purdue's the better team, Purdue has the better big Purdue has not even a conversation of them having better guards, and they're more a cohesive unit. Now, this isn't necessarily a path I'm trying to take us on for an indictment against IU or an indictment against Mike Woodson, but they are clearly a flawed team, especially when it comes to the modern elements of the game of having high-level guards, of being able to not be like efficient on like 4 of 10 from 3, but like a 12 from 16. That's just not the way they play. It's not the way they're built in terms of this iteration of them. So my question for you is, where is the line between hey, show a little pride and no, this is really a flawed team. What else did you expect to happen against a number one, in this case, number two Jimmy, team in the Jimmy, country? Jimmy, 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 let me stop you there. Uh, when, you, when, you played, when Purdue played Nebraska, those two even teams, when Purdue played Northwestern, is Northwestern a flawed team? Were those two teams that were similar? Does Northwestern have a big similar to Zach Eady? Does Nebraska have a big similar to Zach Eady? I would argue they're way better from beyond the arc in almost every metric than Indiana is right now. Did you did you watch those two games? I did, yes. If you, if, if you watched those two games, it was clear to you that Northwestern defensively brought a level of effort. Yes, I would agree with that. It would also be, if, in watching ranked math, defensively along with help side defense, set the tone that Zach Eady's not just going to post up on the low block and get whatever he wants. Did Nebraska shoot the lights out? Absolutely. Did Northwestern make timely shots? For sure. But the foundation to beat Purdue is 
we're not going to let Zach Eady walk in here and go for 30 and 20. That's just not going to be how it goes. He's going to have to earn it. And when you've got guys that are fighting defensively, it's infectious. It leads to better offense. It leads to opportunities to hit shots. Look, let's not forget, Indiana played that second half even with Purdue. If that effort comes out in the first half, it's a different ball game. But if you're not ready to play against the number two team in the nation for tip, you find yourself chasing, you're never going to be good enough to come back against Purdue down a 20 spot. You just have to be ready from tip. Could Indiana have won that game despite their flaws? Absolutely they could. This Purdue team is not indestructible. Like they, they, they can be beat. It's just a matter of the mindset going in. Indiana, for certain, does not have the shot makers. But Indiana defensively has an ability, and their two best players, arguably, are their bigs. And those bigs, I look at Khalil Ware's second foul in that game, that's indicative of their mindset. Zach Eady's point-blank range, he's ground zero. He's about to lay the ball in. What are you doing fouling right there? You've got to stay eligible in this game. You can't violate there. Give up two, fight for the next play. But you're not locked in to understand what it's going to take to beat them, and that's where you lost the game, the first 20 minutes. Jordan, I thought a pivotal moment of the game, Jordan Cornette is our guest, I thought a pivotal moment was, and I thought it was a stroke of brilliance, when Matt Painter, you know, Trey Galloway, we talked to Rob Blackman earlier about this, but Trey Galloway started to kind of get going. The crowd gets into it. And then Painter goes and pulls Ethan Morton out and says, go in there. And I thought he really, at that point, kind of took the ball out of Galloway's hands and that restalled Indiana's offense to the point where Purdue was able to push it back again. But that comes with, and I want you to elaborate on this, kind of that mentality. It's not every program out there, Jordan, that can pull a guy that's been a starter and been a good player for a program that then is only getting 13 minutes in a game and finds a way to contribute and alter the game without scoring the basketball. To me, that speaks to what Matt Painter has instilled in West Lafayette, but I wanted you to elaborate on whether you agree or disagree. Well, well, two things that I want to touch on, Jake, is for one, I, I love Trey Galloway's game. I know he hasn't been the most efficient this year. I know maybe he hasn't taken the step as a leader production-wise and efficiency-wise people would like. But that young man competes on every possession. And, and I, I enjoy watching Trey Galloway. I know they wish he shot a more efficient clip from three. He was productive in this game last night, and he always brought the fight. Uh, he wasn't efficient with his shot making, uh, but he was out there competing. As for Purdue, I think anybody that really knows the game, and I know I'm talking to guys here that do, uh, Matt Painter's always had the proper culture in that place. They've always been relevant. They've always been uh, a team that is going to, uh, be a tough out, and they've grown incrementally over his, what is it, 17 years now, I, I think, with Matt Painter there, which is it's crazy. It might even be more if I'm, if I'm wrong on the number there. Um, but what P- Painter's always had is a fortified locker room, guys that play for each other, a connected group. And when you're winning, you would hope you've got guys that understand, hey, let me master my role because it's not like we're on a 10-game losing streak. It's not like we're playing for the NIT. We've got a special thing here. And those guys in that locker room understand that. And I think it showed in that second half when you did see uh, for a moment in time that fight from Indiana because there was a fight coming out in the second half. But this was a Purdue team that collectively said, we're going to keep them underwater. We're going to take that punch and we're going to spawn with a counter punch. And that's a group that's cut from potential uh, championship ilk. That, that is a team that's playing for a Big Ten championship position to do that. And also position to go out there and go deep into March and ideally win a national championship. I saw a lot on a floor that has not been kind to Purdue in the second half, or in, in, in kind to Purdue 
since Woodson's arrived, and I watched them play great basketball in that second half. So you do have to tip your cap uh, to this Purdue team and the counter punches that we saw time and time again. Jordan, I'm going to make you feel old, man. 19th year as the head coach of the Boilermakers. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? That's amazing, actually. Um, 19th year. It's crazy. I mean, he's one of the best coaches in college basketball. And I I do want to be clear here. I'm not poo-pooing on Indiana. Woodson has forgotten more basketball than a lot of people could ever know. And I I don't want to look like I'm coming down on him because that's not my position. That's not what I do for a living. I think this was more on just the effort from his guys. And I I think I'm sure – and I didn't see any of the post-game sound from Coach Woodson. I'm sure he was upset with how his guys came out in that game. And I'm sure he felt a little bit better with how they came out and fought in that second half. And then they were just overwhelmed, to Jimmy's point. The better team at that point with how the game had played out, all the effort you exert to just come back into it, it's simply too much. And Purdue has depth. They've had more talent. And at that point, you have to come out there and almost play a perfect game for certain against Purdue. And Indiana spotted him the first 20. Jordan, you know, you are a guy that played college basketball at a big program. Obviously, your brother played college basketball. Let me give you an Indiana basketball fan perspective, and then I want you to tell me from a player's perspective if it's a valid concern for Indiana fans or if it's like old guy yelling at clouds, okay? And that is, I, I think that we, and I do this a lot myself, Jordan, I, I think that we have the ability from the couch sometimes we get envious because we see players and we think if I was given that opportunity here's how here's what I would do with it or here's how I would play the game and we 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 try to put ourselves in that position and we become envious and we become judgmental and etc and I think there are a lot of people fans that have such a passion for Indiana basketball that they automatically assume that that means a 19-year-old kid is super passionate about Bob Knight and the five titles and Branch McCracken. And in reality, those players are looking at Indiana as a means and a platform to get themselves to where they want to be as basketball players in terms of the next level. And that irks people. Now, is that too judgmental to say, or is there something to be said for players that don't truly understand the quote-unquote history of Indiana, and therefore their efforts are lacking in critical moments? Well, it's a great question, uh, Jake. It's a dynamic one. And, and certain programs, I think part of the recruiting process is recruiting guys and educating them on where they're coming. Um, with, with Notre Dame basketball, I love uh, where I played, but I don't think that's a huge part of Notre Dame is understanding you know, all the long lineage of what's been achieved here. And Digger Phelps did a lot of great things there. And we do have Austin Carr. We do have Adrian Daly. We do have great players. Indiana's different. And I look at the Indianas. I look at the Dukes. I look at the Carolinas. I look at the Michigan States. And you can run through the Blue Bloods. I look at UCLA. And I do think those coaches are tasked with something different. They're tasked with recruiting guys that understand what Indiana basketball is. And look, times change. The, the, the sport has certainly changed with Transfer Portal and NIL and stuff, but culture and what wins in certain places is timeless. And understanding, if you're going to go play for Tom Izzo in Michigan State, you're going to play with the level of physicality. If you go play at Duke, you understand what comes with it, both on the court and off the court, with, with how you've got to represent yourself as a Duke guy. And you're playing there to, to re- represent that long lineage that goes on to become pros and 
the expectations with it. Those expectations are different at certain places. And I understand Indiana hasn't won a title since, uh, what, am I about to be wrong, 87? Is that right? That's correct. 87, the last time Indiana's won a title. That's a long time ago. But I look on the other side at Notre Dame football, a place that also hasn't won a title since 88, and those players are made to understand who's played before them and what it means. And I do think an educational uh, part portion to when you bring guys in like look this is where some of the greats have played and this is what indiana basketball is this is who bobby knight was and this is what we're about that's part of it when you're going to play at indiana and all these people that might say you know that was a long time ago well no that stuff's timeless and when you're at indiana you understand there's something different about games like last night and you take it to another level when you're playing in games like last night um, I, I look down the road at, at Butler basketball and, you know, Butler's always got to play with the chip on their shoulder. Now it hasn't necessarily been like that the last few years, but the type of players that go there, there's a underdog mentality that comes with it. And that's what you embrace supposedly when you go there. So I'm a big believer in uh, Jake, a little bit of both. You've got to understand what you're signing up for when you go to Indiana. It's also part of the staff's responsibility to ingrain that culture in them. And maybe it means bringing some of those old guys back to remind them so they understand the significance of it, if that makes sense. When you look at, Jordan, like when your brother went to Butler, Joel Cornette, and, and that group, right? I mean, Brandon Miller and, you know, there were there were guys there that that just had that mentality, kind of that chip, right? But what they did was they elevated Butler into a whole new arena of the basketball mm-hmm. program. I mean, Butler had history, don't get me wrong, Billy Shepard and Tony Hinkle. But in terms of from the national perspective, they were the footprint that then went on with Brad Stevens and, and the rest of the history that was made. How do you how do you think, like when your brother went there, do you think they knew we're going here because here's what we're going to do? Or did they just happen to – almost by stroke or by design, get like five or six guys that all shared the same mentality and chip that then came together because they were willing to put it all into one basket? Uh, They brought special guys in. Uh, Those guys were special. Archie's, my brother, Brandon Miller. They got lightning in a bottle. Now there was a foundation there. Laval Jordan, Ryland Hanzi, Thomas Jackson. Like Those guys – had set a tone that this is a, a pretty good team, but then they brought in uh, you guys that wanted to put on the war paint, and go out there and get after it. Like my brother came into Butler having had booze at Cincinnati St. Xavier, our high school when he's at the free throw line in the, in the, in the state tournament, talking about where is Butler that stuck with my brother to a degree that was, he was incensed. So when he arrived, he was determined from day one, people are going to know who Butler is. And some know the stories about Todd Licklider putting, you know, up in the locker room uh, in the preseason going into what I believe was my brother's junior year. Let's make the NCAA going into my brother's senior year. Let's make the NCAA tournament. My brother is like, what, what kind of what kind of crap is make the NCAA tournament? We're here to win a national championship. And everybody wanted to temper those expectations. But that was the mentality is no, 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 nobody's going to shortchange us. And that was infectious amongst that group. Now, did they win a national championship that year? No, but they got to the Sweet 16. And from there, they ended up going to Final Fours. But it started with a belief from my brother and his group. It wasn't just my brother, but it was a couple like-minded guys like him. And that's a little bit more difficult to do here because the four-year guy thing doesn't really happen anymore because of the portal. 
because of the ability to go pro, because of NIL, you're you're getting guys that are stepping out there for maybe a year or two, but you can still find those culture guys that congeal with the other ones that have that like-minded mentality. Culture is what wins in college basketball. And if you're going to get guys in the portal, you got to get guys you know are going to fit what you want your culture to be. And if those guys are talented but don't understand your culture, you don't have a chance. And so a lot of programs are becoming further away from what they are because they've conceded some of that stuff. The teams that are special, the teams that are playing for what's in front of the jersey and are playing for the guy next to them, not for what my NIL deal is, not for the ability to go pro or not one foot out the door for the better opportunity if coach gets on me. Culture, above all else, is what's winning in collegiate athletics right now, and Butler had that back in the day. Okay, lastly, Indiana, NCAA tournament team, yes or no? I mean, yeah, but come on, man, Jake. That that's where we're at with Indiana basketball. Oh, I know. I mean, no, trust me. I, I, I hate that. That's the question. And and again, I think it's also the challenge of the landscape now to consistently be what they've been. But yeah, they're they're an NCAA tournament team. But is that going to make everybody listening happy? <laughs> I, I don't think so. So I I think they've got to get a lot better. I think they've got to find a way, which is really difficult with what Jimmy's talking about—the ability for them not to make shots. You, you got to be at a. You got to be at have shot makers, not shot takers. That's a big part of this too, and the margin for error is so slim for Indiana because of that. I think they're playing to make the NCAA tournament, but right now it feels like a first weekend team at best. You're the best, man. Great stuff last night, in particular in the studio. Just with I loved the candor and I loved the honesty in breaking down the game at the half. Always appreciate the time, Jordan. Great talking to you guys. Have a great show. All right, Jordan Cornette again last night on the coverage on Peacock, the halftime of the Indiana-Purdue game. We began the show by talking about uh, news with the Pacers and Pascal Siakam in Toronto. Still nothing concrete. What I find interesting is that there might be a slight tweak to things. So we will let you know exactly what I'm talking about, and we'll do it in just about five minutes. So let me read for you last night. What yours truly, at Jake Query, that's J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y. What I wrote on Twitter, and then let me read you some of the clown responses. And yeah, I'll be that guy. I'm not normally that guy. I'm going to be that guy, right? Last night, I sent the following tweet. I'm fine with flipping Bruce Brown and picks for Siakam. But Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, and maybe even Buddy Heald would be off-limits to me in terms of salary matches. So let me read you some of the replies. This from Don G. So basically, you want him for free. Good one. This from Peter Yiannopoulos, who is an NBA writer in Toronto. Raptors got Barrett and quickly for OG, but no way Indiana sends Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, or Buddy Heald for an NBA All-Star like Siakam. You are high comedy. This from Realistic Raptors fan. None of these dudes will be half of what Siakam already is. Most likely, Jarris Walker will never reach all-NBA level. Same with Ben Matherin. Stop hyping up your, your mid-roster. Pascal's elite, and you'll find out soon enough. Right about that part. Now, Eddie Garrison, if you could, please. Play it for us. Jimmy Cook, read 
what's out there. This from Adrian Wojnarowski about five minutes ago. Breaking, the Indiana Pacers are finalizing a trade to acquire all-star forward Pascal Siakam in a deal that will send Bruce Brown, Jordan Wara, and three first-round picks to Toronto Raptors. New Orleans will be a third team in the deal, sending Kyra Lewis to the Raptors. Woj updated that tweet. Indiana is sending two 2024 first-rounders and a 2026 first, along with Bruce Brown and Jordan Nawara. So wait a minute. New Orleans will also send a second-round pick So Jordan Nawara was the salary match. So what you're telling me is Indiana clearly said they'd be willing to flip Bruce Brown and picks but in terms of the salary match, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, and Buddy Heald, they did not want to part with, right? It would appear Jake Stradamus strikes again. Gee, what do you know? Might be that Jake knew what the hell he was talking about. So all these clowns in Toronto, where are you? I told you. That's what it comes down to. Right? You did. Thank you, Matt Linvell. Look, Jake Query already knew. Thank you. I don't have the... Uh supposed to have a track built in here so you take your victory lap but we didn't have the opportunity with the funds and the budget from the company to get that the so. carpet of that was worn out from the last exactly guy. right yes did you get a hold of evan okay so evan sidery i always forget if it's sidery or sidery I, I i like to say sidery sidery so that i'm correct both ways is that cool i don't mean to be disrespectful oh no no worries no worries at all sidery Okay, so listen, Evan, to me, and and I don't know if it's coincidence, I really don't, but, and I I caught a ton of heat for this because I was saying that if I'm Indiana, I do not part with, and I know that Jalen Smith, they've got to resign long-term, I get it. Buddy Heald is an important locker room guy for them, I get it. And Isaiah Jackson, I think, you know, somebody was like, dude, you're holding on to your number three center, Isaiah Jackson becomes... He's an important player because he's young, right? And I think that he's part of their their future mix. The real question in all of this, I guess two-part question, Evan, the first is, do you think Indiana held out a little bit to protect not getting rid of those guys? And secondly, is Siakam coming here as a rental, or are they going to lock him in because his contract's up at the end of the year? Oh, to answer your second part there real quick, Jake, Adrian Wojnarowski just put this out about 10 seconds ago, that Pascal Siakam is very excited about coming to Indiana and it's very, very likely there's an under-the-table handshake agreement between both those sides long-term. So it seems like Pascal Siak, for the price they paid, essentially being for four or five years, Jay, I think it's a home run what they just did. Okay, now, secondly, do you think that Indiana played hardball in terms of any of the auxiliary pieces that were sent? I think a little bit. I think you can kind of play the game because you know Toronto has little to no leverage here. You have Pascal Siakam, who's on an expiring contract, who's let it be known behind the scenes that he did not want to extend or re-sign. With the, he, had to pay, he wanted to pick his own team, so to say, to potentially go to. And luckily for the Pacers, that was them. But I think them not being able to get up any of those guys, like Buddy Heald, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, Obi Toppin. You now have an interesting, I think, in my opinion, J.K. Logjam there at the four spot. And I do wonder now, even more so than keeping those guys out of a deal, are the Pacers done yet? And now with this kind of move, with the little bit of assets they gave up in this, you still have Obi Toppin and Jalen Smith and some other guys. I would not be shocked at all, Jake, to make another move here soon. I think just the way the front court is in balance right now with all these guys, I would not be shocked at all if they made another move here before the deadline just with the way it's going. So I think it's a home run for them, the value they get up there. And I think not being able to get one of those young big guys or even OB Toppet on that too, fantastic, fantastic value. And for a team like Indiana, I only get draft picks here in an expiring salary. I think right off the bat, that's an A-plus grade for me. 
Evan Sidery is our guest, covers the NBA at large. Evan, you mentioned the thought of maybe a, a handshake or a hush-hush agreement or something of a, hey, don't worry, we're going to get an extension done. I know you mentioned there's been subsequent tweets about where things would stand. Bobby Marks of ESPN highlights the fact that we already knew he's on an expiring contract, but he'd be eligible to sign a two-year, $81.5 million extension with the Pacers up until June 30th. But arguably more importantly with this trade, they inherit the bird rights for Pascal Siakam. In other words, the ability to spend more than any other team can on the open market. That'd be a five-year, $247 million contract in July. What makes more sense both for Pascal Siakam and the Pacers as we start to approach the negotiations phase in the coming months? So I think what I would do in this situation, I think for both sides, they're going to play this out, and let it ride. I'd be very surprised they do a two-year extension upon agreement here because I think Siakam wants to see how he works in Indiana and vice versa. I do think something along the middle between that, not getting Siakam a five-year, $247 million deal, I don't think that's a good idea from Indiana's point of view because he'll be 35, 36 years old by the end of that contract. But I would try to maybe go for a four-year deal, four-year full max agreement. That would put Siakam at his 30, age 34, 35 season. It gives you one less year as far as if it, if it does go bad, you have protections there on it a little bit. So I would try to thread the needle if I was the Pacers here. Let this play out the next couple months. Hopefully Siakam and Halliburton make instant magic on court, and they'll be a really good team and convince Siakam to stay long-term. I think it'd be more so of a four-year deal, which would be $192 million compared to five two forty seven. I think that's probably the Pacers' appetite here. Let's not get up that fifth year. But if, it, if they go really well here, let's say the Pacers get on a hot streak with Halliburton come back soon, and this dynamic duo they have now, Siakam and Halliburton, is just unstoppable on the court. Maybe they feel comfortable enough to go that five years. But I would probably lean towards they try to do something more in the four-year range. Do you think there's any chance, Evan, and I'm almost embarrassed to ask this because it sounds so elementary, but Pascal Siakam, I don't know how many people realize this, Pascal Siakam's brother played for IUPUI. Does familiarity with market and perhaps even him talking to him come into play in any way, shape, or form in Siakam's desire to actually want to stay here? I think that's a fair question, Jake. I think really the biggest selling point for this Pacers team, and I think we all know the answer here, is Tyrese Halliburton. I think having the ability to go play with Tyrese Halliburton, a guy can give you 12, 13 assists per game, an elite offensive score on top of that, He's going to spoon-feed Pascal Siakam the best looks he's had since the NBA Finals run. They had Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry on that roster. Siakam was not fully developed yet as far as the player he is today. I would not be stunned at all if we see Pascal Siakam come here and once Halliburton's back in the lineup, he puts up 25 points per game, seven rebounds a game, and four or five assists per game. He feels like the ideal fit here for what they're doing offensively. He'd be one of their best wing defenders off the bat, too. So I think definitely having familiarity with the family is a good point. I didn't even know that, Jake, so that's a good point on your end. I do think, though, Tyrese Halliburton, having the ability to sell him with the player Tyrese Halliburton, I think that's going to be the huge factor here to look forward to. Is Siakam a, a quick fleet of foot wing defender, or is he more of a big in terms of the defense that he – in other words, can he go side to side, or is he more just big body defender? And you know, Because admittedly, I haven't watched a lot of him in Toronto. I think Siakam's a really a true hybrid in that role, Jake. He can go out and play the perimeter, but now at his age, at 30 years old, he's going to be – I would say he's more so in the post kind of guy. Like he's a, he's a player. Now you go up against Giannis, and you have a, a better chance than you ever had against a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's not going to fully stop Giannis, but he's going to give him a really good run for his money on the defensive end when he's fully locked in. I think he's more of a guy you can, you can put throw on fours, fives, maybe some bigger threes. I think his mobility is a little bit less than it used to be a couple of years ago, Jake. But I think now the pace has been needing forever. A guy at six seven to six nine who's around two hundred twenty pounds who can guard those Jason Tatums, those Jalen Browns, the Jimmy Butlers of the world, 
And Pascal Siakam now can do that. You add him now next to Aaron Neesmith, and that's a really, really fun duo to build around. And obviously, Jairus Walker now developing behind those guys, too. And you have a really good infrastructure defensively around Tyrese Albert. Evan Sidery is our guest. Evan, this will be a point of the trade that gets lost at times, but will no doubt be discussed in the coming days. The Pacers were very quick when free agency opened. Bruce Brown was their guy. They wanted to acquire him. They felt like he could be a potential piece, not just in the short term, but maybe in the long term. We know there's a team option that was attached to that deal, so it ultimately would have been up to the Pacers. When you look at the brief stint with Bruce Brown, what's the overall consensus of that signing and why maybe it made the most sense to move on from him outside of just the salary components? Or was it just strictly monetary in your mind? It kind of feels more on the ladder there, Jimmy, that it kind of from the very beginning, it felt like a big overpay for Bruce Brown. It more fell in the range of $15, $16 million a year, but the Pacers had to hit their salary floor this year. They gave it all to Bruce Brown, essentially a one-year deal with that team option on the end of it. And kind of this whole season, I've been expecting one of Buddy Hill or Bruce Brown to be moved in a trade to get the Pacers a win-now piece like a Pascal Siakam. With it being Bruce Brown, they actually they have to send out less money than they would have before because he'll go at $19 million, Bruce Brown to twenty two. So I helped him out in this deal, in my opinion, there. But I think Bruce Brown overall, his tenure in Indiana, I would say was a solid B. He gave him a good veteran leadership, some solid offense. The defense is pretty inconsistent just based off what we saw so far. But maybe in a better, more winning environment with guys, more defense-first guys around him. He'll probably look more like he did with the Denver Nuggets on a different situation. But for what he did over the few months he was in Indiana, a good veteran voice, a solid playmaker, solid score. I'd say it was a solid B for Brown's couple months tenure here. Evan Sider is our guest. We're talking about the fact that Pascal Siakam, it appears as though, is on his way to Indiana. And I want to go back to this, Evan, because uh, you touched on some of the numbers in terms of what it would cost to get Siakam to sign here beyond this year, which one would assume that Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan are thinking that because you don't want to give up a lot for what would be a rental. So if, in fact, he does sign Beyond this season, you have Halliburton already on a big deal. I know you mentioned it off the top, but I want to revisit it. That would give them flexibility to get what other kind of player in terms of what they would have to retain young players already on contract. You know, three years from now, four years from now, Indiana would have what kind of flexibility or can we safely say from a splash standpoint, they're done? I would say as far as potential splashes go, this is probably their core. I would imagine their, their big three, quote-unquote, is set in for at least the next couple of years. Tyrese Halliburton, Pascal Siakam, and Miles Turner. If all goes well, Siakam won't be here past this season. And I think more so for the Pacers' point of view moving forward, they're not going to have any max cap space now, obviously, with Siakam on board here. And they probably won't for the next couple of years. But now you have these young pieces like Benedict Matherin, Jairus Walker, Aaron Neesmith, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson – all these young guys didn't get up in these trades, including Andrew Nemhar on top of that as well. Now you have flexibility down the road. And I'm not saying immediately, but maybe one or two years down the road, if a disgruntled star becomes available, the Pacers, even with the draft picks they get up today, they can offer a Matherin or a Jairus Walker in a big type of deal and go get a third-star player or fourth-star if you want to include Miles Turner in that mix to get this team to a really, really elite level. And that's something that's more of a long-term thought, but in the short term, you're banking on Bennett and Matherin, you're banking on Jairus Walker to fully develop into those solid starters long term and if they don't reach that potential you have the flexibility not down the road to maybe offload some of those guys to get a better more win now piece alongside Halliburton and Pascal Siakam any of this Evan indicate that Bruce Brown was just not a fit or was it simply the fact of hey 
he makes this possible? Or did, do you think they just looked at it and went, yeah, it wasn't working the way we thought it was going to? I think, to be honest, Jake, I think they viewed Bruce Brown more as a one-year rental this whole time. I didn't really see much of a future with Bruce Brown past this season. He's a good guy to have in the locker room. He's a good veteran voice for guys that don't have any playoff or championship experience. But Bruce Brown really was just a guy to get them to their salary for the summer. And they beat out teams like the New York Knicks to get him, who wanted him as well. But when you see Bruce Brown, his fit, it wasn't the best as far as they needed an elite wing defender. Bruce Brown is a good defender, but he's not exactly great or elite. And you go ahead and upgrade him to a Pascal Siakam type of player, that's a huge win. You need to get three first-round picks in the process there. That's a deal if you're the pace you do every single time, every day of the week. And I think Bruce Brown, like we mentioned, had a solid run here. But this whole time, I kind of envisioned him and Buddy Heal only being on this team past this season. You know, Buddy Heald is an interesting one, Evan, because – and you know this, Buddy Heald is, when it comes to Tyrese Halliburton, he's kind of his Robin. He's kind of his, his, like a big brother. I think he's a really good locker room guy. I think the players really like him. I think he adds levity when levity's needed. And But yet, you can only pay so much for that, right? Is Buddy Heald at a point in his career where there is a team that is going to overpay him, or is there the chance that Indiana – based on sentiment, gets kind of a discount, and Buddy Heald sticks around. Yeah, I would not be shocked at all, Jake, if, if Buddy Heald plays well here, if they don't try to trade him in the next month or so before the deadline to get another long-term piece near past his expiring contract for Buddy Heald. I would not be shocked at all if Buddy Heald decides to stay in Indiana past this season. And that's totally on the table. I think we, we heard about in the offseason Buddy Heald wanted around $20-plus million dollars a year. The Pacers did not want to do that for an extension. But if the Pacers start winning a lot of games, if Buddy Heald fits in well, like the Pascal Siakam off their bench, I won't be shocked at all, Jake, if they brought him back on a two- or three-year deal and had him be their sixth man and had Benedict Mather potentially to finally take over the reins long-term as their starting shooting guard. But if Buddy Heald buys in, he signs in on, let's say, a 12 to $15 million-a-year contract after this season, the Pacers still would not be in the luxury tax. They'd own his bird rights. They'd own Siakam's bird rights. So they can play around over the cap, so to say, with their salary cap, and then you can still re-sign Buddy Heald to a deal like that, and it wouldn't impact their cap. They would still be under the luxury tax, so to say. So I'd actually not, for this trade with Buddy Heald not being included in it, I would say there's a better chance more than ever that Buddy Heald stays in Indiana past this season. Evan Sidery of Forbes covers the NBA for them and joins us with the reports the Pacers are acquiring Pascal Siakam from the Toronto Raptors. Evan, when the season started, the thought on the Pacers was they're a very high, efficient scoring team, but the defense is lackluster. It's got to improve over the last three or four weeks, give or take, you've seen a shift with kind of play style from them where it's not all about points. They've been able to find a nice blend of better defense than they were, which, let's be honest, they were towards the bottom of the league at that point, to more middle to lower end while not sacrificing too much offensively. Jake already asked you on the defensive side from Siakam. From an offensive standpoint, when everybody's fully healthy, back and ready to roll for the Pacers, where does it place them in terms of what they want to do offensively at a high level? I think offensively, Jimmy, you're looking at a team like we saw in the first month or two of the season where they could really hop back to historic levels of offensive efficiency. It's dipped a little bit, obviously, since Halliburton's been out, but you add a guy in Pascal Siakam who is a ideal fit next to especially Tyrese Halliburton, but also Miles Turner. Miles Turner's an ideal stretch by the play of Pascal Siakam. He's going to open up the floor even more for Siakam in driving lanes or catch and shoot situations. You add another piece that can shoot like Buddy Hill in the equation as well. Pascal Siakam is going to have the most room to operate offensively he's seen potentially in his whole career. And that's going to open up so much for guys like Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner, everyone else in that rotation as well. 
I think Siakam, he might put up career-best numbers pretty quickly in Indiana. I think that's an ideal fit offensively. You're talking about already a top-five offense, Jimmy. I think with Siakam on board now, if all clicks like we expected to, I think they could be easily the number one, number two offense in the NBA in short order. You know, it's interesting because it makes one of two guys now probably Evan expendable moving forward, and that would be Obi Toppin and or Jalen Smith. Smith is obviously on an expiring deal. Is he a guy that could get kind of overpaid in the open market, or is there the chance Indiana opts to go that route, re-signs him, and Tobin then becomes exp- expendable? Yeah, I think Excuse they now me, have the flexibility. Yeah, they have the optionality, Jake, of really deciding on those guys. And if they want to, they could, like I mentioned earlier, move one of those guys for a veteran piece that maybe has a longer-term deal. Because I have a hard time now seeing with none of those front-court pieces being moved in this deal – how OB Toppin is going to get consistent minutes, how Isaiah Jackson and or Jalen Smith are going to get consistent minutes. It could be one of those guys or the other. I would not be stunned at all if we see like potentially them shopping Toppin and one of Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith to get a more veteran wing presence in here, to get to have more scoring or potentially more defense off their bench. Because it feels like to me at least both those guys might not be on this roster past this season. The way Jalen Smith especially has been playing, Jake, he's been up career-best numbers. I have a very hard time seeing accepting that player option at $5.5 million. He could potentially double down the open market this summer. So I would be surprised if either of those guys are back this year. And that, to me, opens up the floodgates a little bit for what they could do in the trade market. Forbes Sports is where you can read Evan's work. And, of course, on X Twitter, whatever you want to call it these days, E-S-I-D-E-R-Y, at E-Sidery, Evan Sidery, joining us on short notice. Much appreciated, Evan. We'll let you get back to work on this, but appreciate being on retainer immediately for us and jumping on. Absolutely. Anytime, guys. Really appreciate it. All right, Evan Sidery. Now, in terms of the Pascal Siakam move to Indianapolis and the question as to what it means for Siakam's long term, his agent has spoken. And we'll tell you what he said next. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, a good mix of college hoops as well as the NBA. We'll take Ole Miss on the road on the money line at plus 130 at LSU. Later tonight as well, we'll lay six and a half. The UConn Huskies favored by six and a half as Creighton comes into town. Lastly, in the NBA, we'll take the Milwaukee Bucks to win the money line over the Cleveland Cavaliers. Eddie, do you have anything today? No, I do not. No bets today. Those Sorry. are your plays of the day. Kind of busy. It's all right. So have I. I just made some time. Uh, this from Mark Spears reporting a quote to Andscape, which is a, I believe, basketball. Uh, no, I take that back. Formerly the undefeated. They did an interview with Pascal Siakam's agent. He had the following to say, quote, I'm excited that Pascal is getting a first-class opportunity with the Pacers, being paired with Tyrese and Miles, and being coached by a great coach in Rick Carlisle. His future there looks his future there looks bright there. Sick. Uh, quote, end quote. So that is certainly optimistic that Pascal Siakam um, is here beyond just this season. Now, he is a second team, I believe, at the most, uh, his highest level of achievement, which is not underselling it at all. A second-team All-NBA performer and a third-team All-NBA performer, uh, most recently of either last season or the season before. But Siakam is a kind of a combo forward. He can guard on the wing. That's the biggest thing for the Pacers is the fact that he does guard on the wing, and that is an area that Indiana has desperately been trying to upgrade 
over the last couple of years. I think Bruce Brown, a lot of people, including you know the Pacers when they got him uh, from Denver, there were two things they really wanted out of Bruce Brown. The first was just his leadership in terms of where he had been in Denver and winning a title. The second was his on-ball defense. I think the Pacers figured out that Bruce Brown, as good an on-ball defender as he has been, that they were asking him to be an on-ball defender at positions that were bigger than Bruce Brown. And so they needed to upgrade that position or that uh, area in terms of size with somebody that could guard from a bigger standpoint. And I think Siakam fulfills that need. He also obviously can score. So Biggest thing I want to address from all this, and I had the initial reaction last night, by all accounts, and this could wildly change because it's only January, but this is not the same draft class in 2024 that you just saw in 2023. If the Pacers achieve what they want to achieve this year, you're largely giving picks in a weak draft class that will be lower than where they could have been if you were a lottery team. Right. On top That's of the that, big thing, right? Again, on top of that, as you highlighted already, Jake, no key roster pieces really given up in this deal. Bruce Brown, you would have had a hard time selling to me, and I'm sure the franchise with a team option, $20 million next year would have been a tab worthy of picking up. The I, I think when you look at draft picks, and this is what people need to realize, when you're talking about three draft picks, as you mentioned, I think two first and a second, right? Isn't that what we figured out? I think two firsts and a 2026 first rounder as well. Here's um, what we think about picks right there. And you get a second round in return <laughs> for this year. Um, JMV with a picture that just says F them picks. Uh, listen, <laughs> if you look at the young pieces for Indiana, I think they've seen enough now out of their young pieces to say, if we're going to be with Isaiah Jackson, you know, Jalen Smith is a curveball because you don't know what he's going to do contractually. But Isaiah Jackson, um, certainly Benedict Matherin if he's here, Ben Shepard, Jarris Walker, they have young players that are, when I say young, I'm talking under 22 and under. Sure. Those players are, you have seen enough out of them to know that you can run with them as opposed to three guys that you're going to be drafting that are 22 years old in a year or two. With how so many ex- those are your draft picks right there. With how many expiring deals as well as you highlighted they still have on the roster and Evan brought this up too, they might not be done. Like There's still decisions to be made of who are you extending right. and who are you maybe risking letting walk. I think this is probably the biggest fish trade that they'll have, but that does not mean there might not still be movement between now and the deadline, especially with players like a Buddy Heald that are up for renegotiation this coming off season. Uh, JMV has walked in. John, obviously a loaded Wednesday in terms of news today, right? So I, listen, this deal sounds great to me because I didn't want Matherin anywhere near it. I didn't want Walker anywhere near it. Um, am I a little bit skeptical? I guess you could be skeptical about age and, you know, you know, talk about timelines and all that crap, but I'm ready for this team, any team around here to win. Purdue, Indiana State, the Pacers start winning. So I, I am happy with that. I was skeptical about whether or not they were going to get it done. But as far as winning right now, there's not a damn thing wrong with it. And I think Jimmy brought that up. You look at that deal, it's not like there's any major parts that you lost. And uh, you'll move forward, especially if you can re-sign him. I mean, if his agent is excited about it. I know Wojnarowski mentioned that, you know, this is a guy that uh, – would like to to maybe re-sign here now. That's that is great to me. I love it. So, start the winning. Start the winning right now. Will he play tomorrow night? 
Uh, the couple reports said it was unlikely that he'll oh, play tomorrow Oh, come on now. Night. Let's get I'm that right thing going in Sacramento. Come on now. Jake, you asked about the picks. JMV, I know you love them. Oh, but, I love uh, picks. One of our favorites, Tony East, says that what he's told, the picks are a 2024 Indiana first. That is protected one through three. Again, not that that matters where the Pacers are right now. A 2024 OKC first that has some contingencies on it based on where that pick is. And then a 2026 Pacers oh, no. first, that would be a one through four 2026, pick. what will we ever do? <laughs> what are the odds you and I are I'll here be, in 2026 on draft night? I'm not going to be alive in 2026. I mean, come on, right? Come on, fellas. 2026, I'm going to be calling you and we're going to be getting together to watch Andy Griffith with applesauce in the dining hall. My right? clock's ticking right Live here, man. Live show from Rosegate for you, too? Oh, yeah. right. clock's right. ticking here. That's right. All right, the clock's ticking, saying it's time to sign it off and hand it off to you, John. So you'll be up next. <laughs> Carry us home. Have a good show, all right? JV up next. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back with you noon tomorrow.